Manufacturing Descent since 1996, this is hell. On this week's hell, the new left in France may have some of the same problems as the old left, which has led to the left's electoral defeats in recent years. African-American farmer settlements on the American frontier beginning in the late 18th century experienced freedom and equality. That is, until the Klan wiped them out in the early 20th century. Who needs to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border when Americans have already built a wall of indifference between themselves and the rest of the world? The Electronic Freedom Foundation is a corporate front for Google and Facebook. We'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, which I will tell you about in a moment. And I'll give an audit of the first six months, the first half of 2018 on This Is Hell, as we approach our Saturday, July 21st, third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's happening in just a couple of weeks, so make sure that's in your calendar. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week is Paris-based writer Jacob Hamburger, who returns to This Is Hell. This time, Jacob will talk about the article he posted at Descent, whose populism, the mixed messages of La France Insoumise. You may remember Jean-Luc Mélenchon from his 2017 French presidential candidacy when he came in fourth place in the first round of presidential voting. That said, he did seem like the darling of the left as following a presidential debate, he was found to be the most convincing candidate by a very wide margin, far ahead of eventual victor in the French presidential election, Emmanuel Macron. So what's up with Mélenchon's insurgent movement, La France Insoumise? Are they the new left in France? And why do they want all the old left to just go away? We'll try not to ask if Mélenchon is the new Bernie or the new Trump. When we talk to Jacob, who is the editor of Tocqueville 21, a bilingual blog that focuses on contemporary democracy. Jacob has appeared on This Is Hell several times, including this past April when he was on to talk about his writing on Alan Bloom at thepointmag.com. Following our talk with Jacob on Jean-Luc Mélenchon's insurgent movement, La France Insoumise, we'll talk to historian Annalisa Cox, who is author of The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. Okay, get ready to have your mind blown. African-American farmer settlements date back to the 1700s in the area that would become Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. These farmers enjoyed freedom, equality, and the right to vote. They were elected to office and left behind a legacy of wealth, power, and contributions to society as a whole. And I'm not talking about a handful of farmers, but nearly 75,000 with some owning farms that were larger than 10,000 acres. So it makes you think, if that's the case, why is the rural Great Lakes region so friggin' white? 
well, you're not going to like the answer, and you're definitely not going to like when it happened. But let's just say you can blame it on the violent, even deadly hatred displayed after the Civil War by late 19th and early 20th century whites in the North. Annalisa Cox is currently a fellow at Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. After a truly enlightening and then disturbing and then empowering conversation with Annalisa on how African American settlements dominated the Great Lakes at one time, we'll hear from journalist Eileen Truax, who wrote the new book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. We don't need to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border after all. We already built a wall of indifference, of not caring at all for immigrants to the United States. And that indifference is doing a very good job keeping immigrants out already. No, the U.S. is not the open democratic nation the media makes the country out to be. In reality, it has a long history of keeping people out, even if they have been pushed towards the United States by destructive U.S. policies abroad. Don't get Eileen wrong. Mexico is also responsible for pushing immigrants toward the border with its own corruption and violence. But that corruption and violence is because of the U.S.-supported and funded drug war. We'll try to figure out how we can take down the wall of indifference when we discuss Eileen's new book. Originally from Mexico, Eileen is a journalist and immigrant currently living in Los Angeles. She's the author of the 2015 book Dreamers and Immigrant Generations Fight for Their American Dream. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell by speaking with investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who wrote the Baffler article, All Effed Up, Silicon Valley's AstroTurf Privacy Shakedown. And that effed part doesn't stand for what you think it does. It stands for a group that has been featured on This Is Hell several times, dating back to 1999, but hasn't been on the show since 2006. And that group is the Electronic Freedom Foundation, which turns out to be a corporate lobbying front for Google and Facebook. So if you are wondering why the EFF was profoundly silent when there were concerns about Google sifting through your Gmail to target you for advertising, or when Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg had to go to Capitol Hill to be confronted by privacy concerns following the Cambridge Analytica scandal, now you know. They done been paid off by Google and Facebook, and not just paid off. EFF was created as a lobbying arm for big tech. That said, the only times we ever had them on the show was when we discussed concerns over electronic voting machine hacking. So it wasn't like we had them on to, you know, on our show to defend Google or uh, protect Facebook. So, way off. Plenty of people have been suckered into that scam. Yasha was an editor at the Moscow-based newspaper, The Exile. This is Yasha's fourth appearance on This Is Hell and his second this year. You may remember Yasha being on most recently back in February when we spoke with him about his book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell as we do most week's show. That is, with a moment of truth from the lovely lobes of Jeff Dorchin. And this week, Jeff gets tangled in time and space. Thank you for that applause. That stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Join us in just two weeks, a fortnight, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studio. 2251 West Devon, beginning as soon as I can get there following that morning show and lasting until everyone is kicked out because it's 2 a.m. and that's when Carrie's closes. So let's say 3 p.m. until whenever. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Merce, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new about you? 
Uh, sorry for picking a live album there that I didn't know was live. Did, do you want to do you want to do future shows though uh, with an applause track behind you? No, not at all. That <laughs> would drive me crazy. The music drives me crazy enough as it is. Also joining us today is our newest volunteer, Leo. Leo, how are you? Busy. I'm gonna guess busy. I am doing good. Thank you. <laughs> <All right>. This <laughs> is this is hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment, streaming live online or our website, this is hell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, this is hell.com. Now airing in an abbreviated one hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho on KRFP. Radio Free Moscow, and on Lumpen Radio in Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, soup enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and somebody over there has this week's hangover cure. I do. I'm reading this week. Awesome. Um, this week's hangover cure is Peru's favorite hangover, apparently, tiger's milk. But it's not actually tiger's milk. In the article, Here's How the World Cures Its Hangovers with Food, posted at the Australian website sbs.com.au, Tiger's milk is part aphrodisiac, part hangover cure. Leche de, de tigre, or the juices of ceviche, is known as a staple in Peruvian cooking. Tiger's milk refers to the liquid left over from a bowl of ceviche consisting of citrus, chilies, onions, and remnants of fresh seafood. Slurp up the juice after finishing off your serving of ceviche, or shoot the juice from a glass on the side. Either way, your hangover could be history. That makes this week's hangover cure Peru's favorite hangover, Tiger's milk, but it's not actually tiger's milk. As soon as I read tiger's milk, I thought for, my mind immediately went towards some crazy tiger dairy facility, and it really disturbed me. <laughs> the image was very, very disturbing. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. We're now halfway, six months into the year 2018, and only a couple weeks from our third annual 20th anniversary slash listener appreciation party and art show that will also have food and live music. So let's take an inventory of what has happened so far this year on This Is Hell. The Anthropocene, the era we live in now that many call the sixth extinction, sixth extinction of species the planet has experienced, didn't start with the industrial age. No, it started with the discovery of fire. Luckily, we've come up with new technologies that won't contribute to climate change as much as fossil fuels have. The problem is the extraction needed to be done to get the resources to build those technologies actually contributes to climate change. But we're so disconnected from nature that we have an ambivalence toward climate change. So climate change will change everything, including our politics and economy, while the businesses that cause climate change have moved on from denying climate change's existence to cashing in on fighting climate change. In case you haven't noticed, it's no longer a matter of when ocean levels rising due to climate change will have an impact on the world's shorelines because that's already happening. Meanwhile, in Puerto Rico, things are a lot worse than we know. And with hurricane season approaching, it's likely to get far worse and worse and worse. Of course, we could just turn Puerto Rico into a gigantic U.S. immigrant detention center, as Australia has done on the island of Nauru, keeping immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers out of sight and out of mind. Also, in things keep getting worse news, there were the Honduran elections, which ended up with deadly violence and a strengthening of a grip on power by the U.S.-backed government. It's the kind of deadly violence caused partly by U.S. foreign policy that has led to a crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. On second thought, maybe we should allow Trump to build the stupid wall, get 
ton, tons of concessions in return, create tons of jobs, and then tear it down. After all, walls can be destroyed a lot easier than bad immigration policies can. Back in the States, there is economic justice for injustice for the poor as payday loan and rent centers gouge the most vulnerable with ridiculous interest rates. And that's far from the only injustice poor communities face as lead-poisoned water isn't only for Flint anymore. It's come to a community near you, and the community near us where it has arrived is East Chicago, Indiana, right across the border from Chicago and Illinois. Bipartisan support for means testing of social services is also hurting the poor, keeping them from necessary resources so they can enjoy the luxuries of, you know, living under a roof with clothes on their back and food in their stomachs. You know, luxuries in today's U.S. of A. Democrats, please don't think New York Governor Andrew Cuomo will get us out of this mess if he runs for president because he won't and he often sides with the very conservatives who he claims to challenge at every opportunity he can in the media. And Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, he's not going to help us either. Here's another thing Democrats get wrong. Appalachia is a lot more progressive than liberals think it is. And you could see that in the West Virginia teacher strike. But liberals get a lot wrong as liberalism has completely and utterly failed, not only as an ideology, but it has failed the left too. Fortunately, there are those who are challenging power, like the labor protests in Iran that are about a lot more than just the protesters' bottom line, even though the media says that is what all protests are about, as all workers are just a bunch of greedy slobs, according to the media. At least that's the way the U.S. corporate-funded news media tells the story. It's not only the media and the corporations that are hurting workers, but their unions are too, as they invest in pension funds that are run by Wall Street, which works hard to undermine workers' rights, pay, and benefits. Even workers' future as union members are threatened by their own unions. That future is now under threat more than ever with the recent Janus ruling by the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, as mandatory arbitration destroys workers' rights, corporate wellness programs are bad for workers' health. Then there's the largest U.S. corporations who are engaging in billions of dollars of worker wage theft to line the pockets of their fabulously wealthy CEOs. But, unbelievably, there is a capitalist way to get some of that power back. Maybe. That is, maybe. And the tech industry is starting to unionize, too. Let's just not forget that this concentration of corporate power at companies like Amazon have been horrible for consumers, too. There might be a solution, a way to challenge that power, and that solution could be something called localization. Maybe radical geography can change the world, and zones to defend could be part of that radical geography. But how did we get here? In part, it's because we have been cursed by, part, by bipartisanism and both parties agreeing on the very bad ideas embraced by neoliberalism. That neoliberalism, neoliberalism is making us all very unhappy, even depressed, which explains why so many people you know are now taking antidepressants. And neoliberalism is also causing a great deal of anxiety as well, which makes sense when you consider consciousness is merely part of nature, just like we are, and everything we see every day, every object, are mere collections of our experiences, experiencing or existing within the natural world, nothing more or less, and the experience of neoliberalism is god-awful. So, no, it's not our fault for being depressed. It's how we experience our horrifying global economic system. However, there is a radical nature to happiness that can free us all from our daily sorrows. Or we can confront our sad state with the extreme power of empathy. That said, sadly, human rights are spreading neoliberalism too. When you sum it all up, neoliberalism has changed the worker from the proletariat to an anxious and depressed precariat 
working a BS job in precarious times. And all our lives are a lot more precarious with the economy depending on conjured money to stay afloat. Therefore, it's probably a good time to remember that if it wasn't for slavery, the British and American empires would have failed, as would have all of capitalism. After all, to this day, the U.S. and the rest of the global north imposes inequality on poor countries through an unfair system we like to call development. Yes, capitalism is in conflict with freedom and always has been. Oh, and guns can turn us into a-holes while turning huge profits for the far right. Speaking of the far right, the rise of the far right in Europe is due to budget tightening through austerity. So if you're wondering why it's happening here in the U.S., it's happening for the same reason in Europe. This creeping authoritarianism has been happening since 9-11 and the U.S. and U.K.'s reaction to those attacks. Another reason there's a rise of the far right in the states, because corporations are remaking the United States one state at a time, changing the rules and laws to benefit them while disadvantaging everyone else. And don't forget the far right isn't just a bunch of dudes with small penises trying to overcome their shortcomings. There are women on the far right, too. And all this is happening while anti-racists are being kept from memorials honoring victims of hate crimes, while racists are not only being allowed to participate in those memorials, but they're actually being invited to speak at those memorials. No worries, though, because while the far right movement is scary and growing, it's also doomed to fail. Thankfully, there are plenty of feminists who are challenging the system of patriarchy, including the unique feminism expressed by indigenous women, which is way better than the feminism expressed on Twitter. There was an opportunity for Native Americans to finally have the food sovereignty they fought for since Europeans showed up, and that was in the most recent U.S. Farm Bill. But judging by recent news on what is in that Farm Bill, and that ain't going to happen. The indigenous are not the only ones whose agriculture is suffering. The culture of agriculture is fading into history as quickly as the American farmer becomes automated. You know, like the way that inequality has become automated. Trump's policies are actually going to make it even worse for U.S. farmers who are now killing themselves at astonishing rates. And it's not only U.S. policy that's threatening farmers. The World Bank is threatening traditional farming all over the planet, leading to hundreds of thousands more farmer suicides. Then there's Christianity that rose to power not by winning some intellectual debate with the classical world, but destroying it. Even our understanding of human origins is mired in bias caused by the Christian European tradition. When it comes to race, so far this year we've attempted to learn how to talk about race. We discovered the power and impact of African American and Latinx history on everyone's history, no matter your race. That history included the dominant role black women played in the black nationalist movement. Even the black power movement wasn't as sexist and dominated by men as we've been told and taught. In fact, black radical thought is the only way to bring about real transformative change here in the United States. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that the FBI's black identity extremism categorization is criminalizing dissent, or that the Chicago Police Department's gang database includes, well, just about everyone. It's also no wonder, then, that some African Americans have given up on talking to Whitey about race, especially when you consider militarism and the war economy that Whitey supports are contributing to racism and causing devastating inequality, poverty, and criminalization of the poor. Yes, America, class really does matter, and a great deal here in the U.S., then there's Trump, who is actually worse than you think he is. Fascism and authoritarianism in the age of Trump has forced whatever American democracy we had into exile. Why? Because white intolerance for anyone who doesn't look and speak like them leads to an opposition against democracy and the rise of authoritarianism. In the Trump area, we are on a rendezvous with oblivion. The scariest thing about Trump is not Trump, but that Trumpism started in 1990 and the Democrats didn't do a damn thing about it. In other news... 
New Orleans has gone to war against strippers. The culture wars are back. The internet is nothing more than a secret military plot to spy on everyone in order for the government to be able to control us. Elon Musk is a tool, and so are all those jerks who call themselves disruptors. We get Brazil and Venezuela Venezuela completely wrong when we see it through the eyes of the New York Times and The Guardian. Millennials are different than every generation that preceded them. But teenagers today do have something in common with all teenagers before them. Their brains are still developing, which explains a lot. The Zapatista women had, or the Zapatista had an all-women conference that attracted women from all over the world, and absolutely no media attention, except here on This Is Hell. Cuba has an offline internet, while the intellectual dark web here in the states is neither intellectual or dark. Latinx. Baseball players face massive discrimination. All that is happening while protests in the U.S. is being commodified, which means politics should not be seen as exceptional. We need to stop placing them up on some pedestal above reality because politics is the only thing that can keep us from despotism, like the despotism being experienced in Hungary, where they voted for that guy, they put him back into power, who acts an awful lot like a fear-mongering, hate-filled dictator. In Hungary, where they think George Soros is far more evil than he is, Yet he's still far more evil than Chelsea Clinton believes. There's plenty of confusion about Italy's new government headed by the Five Star Movement, but that confusion is starting to turn into fear for Italy's future. Oh, and the Russian left sucks. If all that weren't bad enough, the biggest problem identity politics faces may be identity politics themselves. Who knows? Maybe all of the problems that we haven't been able to figure out individually. Maybe all those problems can instead be solved when we try to figure them out collectively. Maybe it is time to give socialism a chance. That was hell so far this year. And that's why this is hell. And this week's question from Al is, what's the most ethical way to circulate this counterfeit $5 bill that Alex just got? What's the most ethical way to recirculate this counterfeit $5 bill that Alex just got? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins, $5. Again, the question from Al is, what's the most ethical way to circulate the counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? Leave your reply right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the new left in France may have some of the same problems as the old left. African-American farmer settlements on the American frontier beginning in the late 18th centuries and uh, late 18th century experience freedom and equality. Who needs to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexican border when Americans have already built a wall of indifference? The Electronic Freedom Foundation is a corporate front for Google and Facebook. During a moment of truth, Jeff gets tangled in time and space, which sounds cool. Plus, rotten history, listener feedback, what else has been up to on social media. Question from hell. A whole bunch of people want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. France's new left doesn't want there to be any other left but them. And that's a problem if you want to have a real electoral challenge to the government of Emmanuel Macron. Here to help us understand exactly what Jean-Luc Mélenchon's insurgent movement La France Insoumise really is and what they mean for not only the left but all of French politics, writer Jacob Hamburger posted the article, Whose Populism? The Mixed Messages of La France Insoumise at Descent. Welcome back to This is Hell, Jacob. 
Great to be back as always. Jacob is a writer based in Paris and the editor of Tocqueville 21, a bilingual blog that focuses on contemporary democracy. Find out more at Tocqueville21.com. You can follow Jacob on Twitter at JM. Hamburgers. So let's just start with how you, dis- well, you discuss what you call Jean-Luc Mélenchon's insurgent movement, La France Insoumise. What makes Jean-Luc Mélenchon's movement so revolutionary and rebellious? Because we were speaking with our correspondent in Mexico, Laura Carlson, last week. And while she said Andres Manuel López uh, Obrador will definitely be a change in Mexico's politics, he also may not be as left as people in the U.S. are making him out to be, as he has backed away from renationalizing the oil industry and from his position to leave NAFTA. So how insurgent is Mélenchon's La France Insoumise? Well, I mean, the the reason I think they were able to, they really surprised everyone in last year's election with the score they were able to, uh, that Jean-Luc Mélenchon was able to uh, manage to get in the first round of the election. He got 19.5% of the first round vote, which was only a couple points behind uh, Macron and Le Pen. Uh, and I think part of that was that he really pitched his campaign to a large degree as a as a rebellion against the Socialist Party. Um and he was able to turn what I think what was animating a lot of far left movements that had been around and had 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 staged what are what you might what you might just call protest candidacies. He'd been able to turn some of that sentiment into a real movement that got a lot of young people and a lot of uh, kind of mid and low level public servants and a lot and a lot of constituencies that were sort of frustrated with with um, the direction that the socialists had taken and had a and had far left ideas and ambitions and was able to put that together into something uh, largely by attacking uh, François Hollande and and his socialist party for having abandoned the you know the reasonably left wing campaign that Hollande uh, ran back in 2012 when he came into office so um, he he basically. Um, uh, waged a kind of war against against the main center left party, and that and had piggybacked off of youth movements that had come up just uh, in the last year before the campaign against the new labor labor laws, which are sort of a precursor to Macron's labor laws now uh, that the socialist government had put into place. So, um, also, there was a lot of there was a, a lot of animus against the uh, Hollande's government's attempts to. Uh, respond to terrorist attacks with some pretty nasty proposals to strip people of their citizenship uh, and put it in the state of emergency that was in place. So there were a lot of, for different reasons, there was a lot of animus on the left against the Socialist Party that Macron, uh, that Mélenchon was able to capitalize on. So is La France Insoumise then an outcome of the traditional left in, in the Socialist Party in France moving towards the center, trying to be a more centrist party than they were before? Yeah, I think that that explains quite a bit of it. Um, and Mélenchon had already been running campaigns against this back in in 2012. He ran against François Hollande, and uh, I think he was able to. I think what he also did is so. What you say is, is exactly right. I think the the message is that the party that presents itself as the left party that has been the uh, they call themselves the Socialist Party had long called themselves the Party of Government. Um, they had really given up on a lot of left-wing issues. Uh, 
uh, not that they had zero accomplishments. I think they, they were able to get gay marriage legalized. Um, they were, um, you know, I, I think a lot, there's a lot of other accomplishments that I think you could look at at a more technical level that don't, didn't really translate much into popular opinion. But Mélenchon definitely came around with, with, that, uh, with that message that, that our social democratic party was, is not standing up for left-wing or socialist values. Um, I, I think another thing to probably add as well is that um, Mélenchon did have his finger on the pulse in a way uh, of the kind of movements that have been that were that have been successful in Europe recently. Uh, he pitched, he presented La France Insoumise not as a political party, but as a movement that has a grassroots support and also a charismatic leader at the top. Um, and so I think there was also not only the sense that the party's politics had gone, the Socialist Party's politics had become too far to the center, too far to the right, but also that it was this old bureaucratic structure that uh, doesn't produce any real leaders and it doesn't produce any real ideas. It's, it's kind of just a, a part of this system that, that uh, people are frustrated with. And so there, in a way, and I, I, try, I tried to address this in the piece, there's actually a lot of ways where Mélenchon and Macron uh, ha- have a lot in common because they both were able to do that. Um, it's probably actually more surprising that Macron was able to do it with his uh, with his center center right policy platform, but um, that's something that Mélenchon and Macron were both able to do. That um, the leaders of the traditional parties, you know, more or less were incapable of doing. Is then uh, what is taking place in France reflective of some more global, some worldwide shift by the traditional left toward embracing neoliberalism? I don't want to. I really don't want to get into um, comparing this to what's happening in the United States because that, that becomes simplistic. But is this like we have seen within the Democratic Party over the last 20, 30 years, a shift by the left in France as well as the rest of the world toward neoliberalism? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty fair to say. And I mean, to their credit, um, you know, um, the, the left wing of the Socialist Party that, at least as it existed, you know, a year, year and a half ago, was also trying to address that too. The, the Socialist Party actually nominated a candidate, Benoit Hamon, who on most of these issues in terms of neoliberalism um, wasn't very far off from Mélenchon. So I think it's... This is not to say that Mélenchon is the only person in, in France on the left that is calling out the Socialist Party for its embrace of neoliberal policies, and especially the way they look within the European Union. Um, but I think Mélenchon was probably seen as more credible than Amon just because he had this really harsh rhetoric of the party, and Amon had to try to play both both sides of, of the coin by appealing to some of the, you know, the, tr- the traditional... Uh, historic role of the Socialist Party, but while also trying to use the same critique. So Mélenchon had a little bit of an easier, something he had an easier position, uh, you know, in the 2017 election. Um, the other big difference between them, and this is, this is, so this is, I think, on the question of neoliberalism uh, and Europe, where they really, really the choice that people were making between Amon and Mélenchon in the Socialist Party and La France Insoumise was on Europe, because Mélenchon's position on the European Union, it wasn't completely Eurosceptic, as in he was saying we want to take France out of the European Union, but he was sending a lot of hints in that direction. Like we, can, we could talk more in details about, about exactly what he was proposing, but he was clearly trying to have a much harsher line on Europe, say, basically, 
Europe needs to either be drastically reformed in a, in a re- relatively uh, uh, radical manner and, and a, in a fairly high-stakes, dangerous matter, manner. Um, and we need to go further, because Francois Hollande, also back in 2012, as the socialist nominee, was, was saying, yes, we need a, a democratic reform of the European Union. We need to allow for... Not, we need to find ways of making the European Union not a vehicle for uh, neoliberal globalization, not a way to just uh, have the race to the bottom in, in terms of regulations and, and worker protections. Um, so Mélenchon, I think, felt that he had to present a more radical line on Europe and say basically, all right, we're going to do this, but if it doesn't work, we're going to threaten pulling out and, or, or at least not obeying the, the, you know, the main European treaties. So Amon... Amon faced with Mélenchon there, was proposing more or less the same kind of rhetoric that François Hollande had run on before. Um, so I think what you definitely saw in 2017 was the beginning of a conversation on the French left of what exactly is our position on the European Union? Um, what is our position going to be if the European Union looks less stable for the future than it, than, uh, than it, than it has for a while? Um, how do we affirm the, the value of the European project while also mount, posing this critique of its role in facilitating uh, degradation of, of, the, of the social democratic welfare state. Um, I don't think, I, I don't want to necessarily take a side on, I think, who got this question right or not, uh, because I think if you look at this, the Mélenchon and Amon, the Francois and the Socialist Party, they're, they're each trying to stake out a different different position and they have different constraints placed on them and they have different, they're fulfilling a different role, I think, in, in this conversation. Um, but this is certainly a conversation that's being had and it's continuing. The, you write that the term populism has most often been used by critics of La France Insoumise as an epithet, a synonym for extremism. Now, again, getting back to Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico. Many have been comparing him to President Trump because they see him, they see them both equally as populists. What do we miss in our understanding of pop- populism when we view all populism as the same and equally extreme and dangerous? Well, so w- one thing I did try to argue in, in this piece is that the there was, as you say, um, when Mélenchon was running this in 2017, and you, you, this is still something that you hear, there, there, the, the word populist was used to try to discredit the movement and discredit the, you know, their ideas. And, to say, there's, and the use of the word populism in, in this pejorative sense, the, 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 I think what's intended often is to say that the left-wing populists who, have, who are populists either because they just have a combative kind of style and they are... They don't have, and they're not particularly friendly to people who are on the more moderate left, or because they, I think in Europe, populist tends to mean Eurosceptic uh, or xenophobic. So the, the advantage of using that term is to say, is to draw some kind of equivalence between Mélenchon, let's say, and Marine Le Pen. Um, there, I mean, one obvious shortcoming of that is that, you know, whatever you think about Mélenchon, uh, he was not running a racist um, anti-Europe campaign, which is what I think the, the right-wing popula- the, the right-wing understanding of populism more or less, more or less translates to. Um, but I also did want to try to investigate in this piece and in other things I've written about uh, 
what exactly we sh- we should, if we're trying to be sympathetic to to anti-establishment left movements, what we should understand by populism. And I think there are some, I think, disadvantages to the way left-wing populists like Mélenchon do want to understand the term. Um, and I think there's a, I don't always agree with Slavoj Žižek, but he had, I think he had captured the problem of populism pretty perfectly. I'm paraphrasing. He had, he said something like, populism works great in practice, but not so much in theory. Um, and I think this is the case with La France Insoumise, because what, what I try to show in this is that if you understand populism as just being, as recognizing that we need a combative style, uh, and trying to do a grassroots organizing and, uh, Get a mo- have a mobilized base, then I think populism is great and the left should embrace that totally. And La France Insoumise is doing a lot of things and has been doing since they since the presidential and legislative elections. They've, they've been doing a lot of things to go in that direction. But I think some of the theoretical, the, the theoretical understanding of populism that Mélenchon, I think you can see him embracing it some of the time, actually as much as the people who criticize populism sort of assumes that there is this space between left-wing and right-wing populism, uh, between radical egalitarians and anti-Europe, uh, anti-immigrant uh, racists. There, there's this assumption that, that uh, there's, a, there's a way to simply shift the right-wing, right-wing authoritarian xenophobic vote uh, over to a left-wing uh, anti-neoliberal vote. So I think there, there's a... The problem to me with populism is more on this theoretical sense, uh, and I've written more about this elsewhere, uh, and I think we should keep that in mind when looking at what actually the France Insoumise does right and what might, uh, what other groups elsewhere, I think, on the left are doing right. Uh, to me, sometimes that just looks like good democratic politics, going knocking door to door, trying to connect with voters, um, trying to... Uh, oppose the neoliberal wings of, of left and social democratic parties, etc. You write for La France Insoumise, the historic levels of voter abstention seen in last year's elections are proof that a dramatic redrawing of the political map is both possible and necessary. In this populist movement, to use uh, Mouffe's words, he's a, a Belgian philosopher who Mélenchon is often seen with. Mélenchon's movement is convinced that the way to win is to mobilize the disillusion through new forms of political participation and engagement. Is that the best way to describe French politics across the right and the left, and that is delusioned. And how much do you blame neoliberalism for uh, this kind of uh, disillusionment, not only in France, but throughout the global North and South? Because all I can think of is, why why does neoliberalism lead to this kind of disillusionment across the political spectrum? Well, I think it's, uh, yes, I, I think in general, it's fair to say that this that this disillusionment is something that in France and elsewhere has uh, that is has has a relationship to neoliberalism. I don't think uh, I, you have to. It's more complicated than just simply saying right. Once we once we uh, once we strip down the welfare state and once we um, privatize public goods, that people start getting politically disillusioned. I think there's more steps there. I think people like Wendy Brown have written more eloquently than than me about how how exactly that that takes place, but. Essentially, I think there's there's quite a lot of truth to that, and I think this is something where um, a movement like La France Insoumise does have a lot of potential because there are people. I think the main thing, it's whether it's a result of neoliberalism or not, the, the main problem is that people feel that, well, what we vote for doesn't really it doesn't really matter what we vote for, what we agitate for. 
uh, we're going to get the same policy no matter what, um, the, or that, uh, you know, even when we vote for, let's say, you know, when we vote for uh, someone who, like François Hollande, who runs on a fairly left-wing platform, they're going to, whether it's because there's some inherent logic of neoliberal capitalism or because there's some, there are EU rules that, they, that no elected politician can get around, we're not really getting what we want to vote for. So I think this disillusionment is there, um, and it's not only in France or in Europe, and um, it's something that, that left-wing movements can, I think, see use this to their benefit because if you do the kind of grassroots campaign that either, either, you know, so as I talk about in the piece, they are, uh, La France Sassamese recently rediscovered Saul Alinsky and they're doing the kind of things that Alinsky used to do, you know, going into, uh, housing projects and knocking on people's doors, just talking to people what's about what's on their mind. Um, I think people doing things like that, or just looking at the kind of campaign, you know, in the U S that, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez ran, you can see that, even just on a purely electoralist uh, point of view, there's a huge there's a huge advantage to um, saying, "All right, people are disillusioned. We're going to just come to them and really show them, you know, that that they can get engaged and that their their engagement and their participation in politics does matter." Um, so, I think uh, in France, I think to some extent, the far right was you you might say was doing this in previous years a little bit better than the left was. I, I think the Marine Le Pen and the Front National gained a lot of ground. Uh, I don't know the extent to which you know, they're, they're running the same kind of ground game. I assume they're not reading Saul Alinsky. Um, but I think certainly the reason, uh, a lot, you can explain a lot of how in recent years they did gain some success by offering some kind of alternative saying, all right, all right, you vote for, you vote for these politicians and you're not getting what you want. Here, we're going to offer you something different. Uh, uh, there's there's other things at play with with the far right. Um, there's the de demonization strategy, which I think is something sort of particular to France, of uh, trying to make the far right look like good, you know, good uh, Republican Democrats, uh, Republican in the French sense, Democrats in the general Democratic sense. Um, so, but uh, I, in, so, but in this sense, anyway, I'm glad to see a movement, a left movement like La France Insoumise, actually going and and having you know, political education meeting, uh, organizing, educating people to be political organizers in some of the, the low income banlieue. And, uh, they do, they have a lot of kind of colorful ways of getting out and talking to people at a, at a local level. And I, I'm, that's something I'm glad to see. Um, but, uh, we're going to, you know, I think it's going to take until probably the, the, I'm especially looking out for the municipal elections, the, 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 the local elections that are going to happen in 2020 to see, uh, where that goes, because I think you're going to see there's a potential to have, there'll be probably some France-Sansemis mayors out there somewhere in, in either the northern, north, uh, especially probably in some of the northern regions of France or in the Parisian uh, suburbs. So I think we're going to, it'll, it'll take a, we're still waiting to see exactly how a left-wing movement like La France-Sansemis can turn this into a winning political, threat, political strategy. So far, they have a small number of of elected officials and in the parliament, the national assembly, uh, and they have and these these uh, parliamentarians have a lot of media space that they take up. You know, they, there's 17 of them, and I'm, I I think probably your average person who follows the news could name more of them than even people in the in Macron's party, which has this huge majority. Uh, they're everywhere. They show up at demonstrations. They're photographed quite a bit. They're invited onto the news. Um, 
it's going to take some time to see if if that will translate into a, a if the grassroots movement can be sustained long enough to get people in power at this at this local level and then building up to more national elections in the future. You're right. How exactly does La France Insoumise understand the path from populist community organizing and street theater to political victory? If the movement's ex- experiments in participatory democracy have shown some promise in building a base, its political strategy has revealed key potential obstacles toward amassing power for the left. What are the biggest obstacles? What are their biggest obstacles? And in France, is there a sizable left that is just waiting to find a movement that can energize them? That's that's really the question, um, and it's tough to see. It's tough to say. I, I think the, the the obstacle here, and I think this this goes back to part of this this theoretical weakness of populism, which I think uh, you see probably Mélenchon himself buys into quite a bit, is that this complete refiguration of populism. I think Mélenchon understands populism as this complete reconfiguration of of the political landscape, and so the the I, he has this resistance to towards coexisting and collaborating with other movements that might not use the exact same populist language. And and I think it seems to me that there might be enough of a a left out there that uh, there's enough of a general coalition that can be brought together to to win certain elections. I don't think there's enough of a base of people that are willing to completely jettison the, the terms in which they've been used to thinking about politics to uh, to say, okay, we're, we are just pop- populist now. We're really just uh, the, the little guys versus the big guys. We don't care about right versus left. I think m- what Mélenchon and France need to do in order to, to extend the reach of their coalition is to be able to have some common understanding with, with other groups on the left, uh, whether that's on the more moderate left of the, so- of the socialists or on some of the far left groups, which wish to... St- here and there have have a strong following in certain unions or other activist circles. Um, and I think if you look at the way some, a lot of the people who were actually elected to the National Assembly on La France Muse's ticket, how they actually did that, they actually were forming some of these alliances on this very local level. It's really, I think, uh, you had either with the with the Parti Communiste Francais, the Communist Party, with uh, uh with very the various green uh, the the green party or other uh, versions of uh, uh, environmentalist po- uh, parties, other other far left parties like uh, the Nouveau Parti Anti Capitaliste, you had at the local level for different campaigns in last summer's elections, people were willing to say, all right, we as part of this little group are going to support the Francisimis candidate. That seems to me to be the be- the, the best way um, to to win these these campaigns is to is is to have this kind of at least a working relationship, um, and there are some cases right where that that didn't happen, and you had people, people, not make the second round of of elections. So it seems to me that um, there's there's a kind of dogmatic unwillingness to work with other people, even on the on the the radical left. Uh, that is in some ways it seems artificial to me, and it seems like it's getting in the way of of really of really uh the Francois is taking a leadership role because that's what they i think they the the rhetoric is saying they they want to do they want to be not just the most the loudest and most visible uh radical left party among among many others but actually have some kind of leadership position 
Uh, I think Mélenchon would probably say it's a, it's a complete supremacy over everyone uh, on the radical left. But at least I think uh, you could see it as a, a will to, to try to lead the left. And I think you can't do that if you're not if if you're more interested in you know having either having an alternative demonstration to the one that other labor leaders or other far left leaders are organizing in a particular context. Uh, you, I think, you know, I, since, since I finished writing the piece and since it's come out, you know, I, I think occasionally you see signs that there's, there's more of this that's taking place. I think, um, there were some more recent, um, protests in May and June against, uh, against Macron's, uh, some of his recent reforms that have seen, I, I think I've noticed a little bit more willingness to cooperate between La France Insoumise and some of the unions or some of the other far left parties. Um, so I think that's an encouraging sign. But on the other hand, uh, there there are more signs that this is not quite going in that direction. Um, there are the European parliamentary elections that are coming up next year, and La France Insoumise, from from what I can tell, seems it's not only them. I think this is happening across the left, but seems to be going more in a direction of kind of factional infighting. There was a group of of people who were members of the Socialist Party who had supported La France Insoumise during the presidential election, which I think is a pretty big strategic victory for them to have people who are who are you know at least kind of within the, in both camps and and who are trying to build these these alliances between you know between these different left movements those people this the socialists uh for la france insoumise were sort of pushed to the side of the of building the list of candidates for the european elections i don't think la france insoumise is the only party that suffers from this uh and recently for these same european elections um benoit amont who was the socialist nominee last year he has a new political movement uh, that and he was trying to get get um, an alliance with the Green Party, uh, Europe Ecologie Les Verts, and um, that that those alliances those completely broke down for the European elections. So I think it's a problem that goes beyond La France Insoumise. But I think I'm if I'm point if I'm focusing on them, I think it's because they precisely want to present themselves now that the Socialist Party is has lost a lot of its clout. It and um, it. It's it's fair to say that La France Insoumise is the most prominent left party out there. Uh, people still argue against that, but it's because they're claiming that, and there's some plausibility to it, that I think it's incumbent on them to try to find a way to not make it in every single instance a battle against these other forces on the left. And it's kind of when you were talking about that uh, dogmatism and that kind of doctrinaire problems that the old uh, French left had, it seems like Mélenchon is making some of those same problems. And, and you write that Mélenchon has sought to purge his movement of older left wing ideas and symbols, particularly those of socialism and communism. Is Mélenchon trying to purge France's left from France's left? And and how leery, cautious, suspicious is the left of Les Insoumis and Mélenchon? Well, I mean, you know, there, there's two ways to look at the the what you mentioned about the old symbols. And the one on the one hand, it's it's very clear if you look at Mélenchon's campaign rallies in 2012 and his campaign rallies in 2017. The one you see a fairly standard list of old left symbols, you know, red flags, singing the Internationale. Um, and, you know, various other symbols that would, you know, are associated with, uh, you know, older history of, uh, uh, far left parties in 2017, um, he has a completely new logo. It's this fee symbol, the Greek letter fee. Um, and, uh, and you see either this symbol, which doesn't really look like anything, you know, it doesn't, you wouldn't necessarily know it's a left symbol. And then, um, uh, one thing he did very, very explicitly was try to 
was to have instead of having these red, you know, these red flags of the old of you know, the old um, of the old left, was to have was to actually have people flying the the, the French flag, the tricolore. And I, I think there's some advantage to that. I think there probably are, you know, people out there that see some, you know, that are frustrated with establishment politics and, and want to see something new and want to maybe see. There's some bit of national pride in saying, all right, Mélenchon is the heir of all, of a long tradition of French. Um, Radical insurgent insurgent politics. So I, I think there's some advantage to that. I think the problem is trying to say is, and it, the problem again comes from this sort of dogmatic theoretical understanding of populism as something that has to completely undo the the logic of left and right. Uh, because I, I think, like I mentioned in the piece, most of Mélenchon's support is coming from people who, to some degree or another, are on the left and have voted in the past for. I talked to I, in doing this piece. I talked to a lot of people who voted La France Insoumise or who became organizers and organizers with them. And a lot you hear a lot of similar stories. Yeah, you know, I voted I voted socialist in the last couple of elections, but I was very disillusioned with them. And now this you know this kind of got me back interested in politics, thinking this is going to be that I can actually have a voice. Uh, you're not having a lot of people who have at any time recently voted for, been sympathetic to anything but left wing movements. It seems to me that there's a certain amount of potential in, in saying, in trying to have a fresh face of the left, having new symbols. Or so I, I'm not trying to criticism necessarily criticize Mélenchon necessarily for abandoning these old symbols. Uh, and and uh, you know, there I think there are a lot of people on the left today who think that's a good thing. What I what I'm a little bit what I what I'm wary of basically is trying to say that is re, is reading too much into that and saying, all right, the the, the answer is to Look for our support outside of people who are more or less sympathetic to the left. I think you're not going to find a ton of new potential left voters in in um, you know whole national supporters, which is what some people I think imagine you're doing by you know waving the French flag at your rallies. How much of Les Insoumis' uh, popularity? would they lose if they were to coordinate with the socialist or communist parties? Well, there is, I, I think there is some, with the communists, I think less, um, and I think you do see more, because the communists are generally, um, you know, they're much less powerful and much less prominent than they were uh, a few decades ago. Although they still, in, you know, there are, there are still communist mayors, there are still communist elected officials. Uh, but, the, but their position is um, at least the, the radical left or the, the oppositional left. So I think there's less to lose. I think the danger that I, I, I imagine Mélenchon and some of the you know, some of his people, you know, uh, and his kind of close strategizing team, the danger they see is is being seen as giving up on as giving up on their oppositional anti-establishment stance by working with them. And I think I do sort of I, I see the logic there. And I think in 2017 for the presidential election, uh, it would have been very difficult for Mélenchon to strike an alliance with Benoit Hamon, who was the candidate of the Socialist Party, because I think I, I think he would have maybe lost some legitimacy with his most mobilized base, um, and of course Benoit Hamon also would have lo- completely lost legitimacy. Uh, neither one could really get see ground there. Now it's it's a different question because since that election, the Socialist Party has fallen so far in in terms of their their clout on the national stage. They're they're, it's it's sort of a shell of what it was. Uh, they're 
their leader now, Olivier Faure, is, um, you know, the, the, the problem is that you don't really associate the Socialist Party with a lot of new, new ideas. You don't really, I don't really, I couldn't tell you much of what the Socialist Party stands for now. Um, and so I think there is, because the Socialist Party has fallen from prominence to this degree, you could say that there's less to lose for uh, Mélenchon and uh, La France Insoumise for aligning with them. And I think on the local level, there's, I think that's clearly where the, the most opportunity is, because this particular socialist in this particular district ha- uh, might have a lot more you know, overlap with the ideas and, and the program of La France Insoumise than some, some other ones. So I think it's a case-by-case basis. Um, but uh, I think one thing that's definitely not even, I think, possible now would be for the, for them to sort of, well, and what you definitely wouldn't see is La France Insoumise in any way rallying behind some socialist candidate uh, that, that I can see having any, any, any prominence. I think um, it doesn't seem that it would even be helpful now to for them to rally behind a socialist. What, what I'm more concerned with is that um, on the level of the, the social movements where you see, I think, the other, the more far-left movements um, most visible and most and most prominent is that um, it seems like every, for a while this spring, for example, it looked like there were, there were either, there were rallies that were, and, and mobilizations that were led by unions or led by the smaller parties where La France Insoumise would, would not want to be seen as playing second fiddle to any other movement. So they would kind of stage their own rally at, at another date and time. Uh, and, you know, they'd say, yeah, we support these other guys, but we're doing our own thing. That to me seems where there's, it, you know, to the extent that that's the strategy being pursued, I think that's a missed opportunity because I think there's a, what you can do is is say, Lord, look, these guys, uh, they're doing their, they're, they're doing their stuff. We're supporting them. We're out there with them, and we want to be the kind of political outgrowth of that. Which I think, to some degree, is is their strategy. Uh, but there, there's a lot of conflicting strategies going on. So I think uh, the more coordination and the more the, the between those seems to me to be the 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 strongest strongest way to go forward. We have been speaking with writer Jacob Hamburger. He posted the article, Whose Populism? The Mixed Messages of La France Insoumise at Descent. Jacob is a writer based in Paris and the editor of Tocqueville 21, a bilingual blog that focuses on contemporary democracy. You can find out more at Tocqueville21.com and you can follow Jacob on Twitter at J.M. Hamburger. One last question for you, Jacob, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. How bad might La France Insoumise and Jean-Luc Mélenchon be for France's left? Well, I think they could either be very bad or be very good. Um, I think if there's there's a moment now, basically, um, where the left, I mean, we shouldn't exaggerate. It really, the left over Hollande's presidency and up to now has come into a big, it, it lost a lot of power. It's in a very weak position. And so this is a moment where it needs to be reconstructed. And I think um, I'm excited to see the, some of the populist elements of La France Insoumise because I think what that means is you have people reengaging in the political process. You have people believing that uh, a radical left program that tries to fight things like climate change and the precarity of work and um, and uh, Things like uh, tax shelters off in the in the Caribbean; these kinds of things can be fought against. So I, I think that is to the extent that La France Insoumise is 
doing the work to get people engaged back in, in the political process and uh, is re-energizing people to get involved in left-wing campaigns. I think that can be that's a very positive thing for the left. Um, at the same time, I think there's a lot of ways where Mélenchon himself and some aspects of, of the movement can be are also posing a danger for this reconstruction. I think, like I've said, I think this sort of artificial uh, combativeness against other radical left movements is, is can be harmful. And I think to some extent, Mélenchon himself is, you know, is not is not perhaps the most uh, the best person to be to be the face of a new left in France. I think he did he uh, he. I think if, if it's you know if it's another Mélenchon presidential campaign in 2022, I will start to get a little bit more skeptical because I think you know there's some way there's some ways in which you want a guy like him who's he's nasty you know he uh, he gets in your face he takes a lot of positions that are almost intentionally controversial and going to make and going to make the left you know seem vilified and that's something I think that there's maybe some there's some strategic potential on that and if nothing else in getting people who are disillusion with with uh, the status quo of politics saying all right there might be this guy might have to be doing something right if he's pissing all these people off at the same time I think if in the next five years all that you've got is this kind of is this kind of symbolic jabbing against the status quo and not really showing oh right, we've got people here we've got a movement we have ideas that are going to be necessary for a Europe that is threatened by uh, by far-right anti-immigrant groups, uh, Europe and a planet threatened by climate change, um, uh, threatened by big tech companies and big finance. If, I think those ideas, I think, are, are there. And I think the, the France Insoumise's program that they put together in 2017, it's a, it's a, you know, there's a lot of good attempts to deal with these questions. Uh, uh, they're obviously not the only ones on the left do it, doing it, but they... They, you know, they're not like the you know, U.S. Democrats, completely out of touch with, uh, uh, at least, you know, the Clinton Democrats that seem to just not be offering answers to what people, what is concerning people. Uh, so the danger, I think, is that, you know, there's the the infighting and the kind of the ego of a guy like Mélenchon uh, gets in the way of taking this moment of energizing, energizing the left, getting people back involved in it. Uh, starting this conversation about what what these ideas for uh, a 21st century European left ought to be, and how to how to how to express that and how to give it shape, I think um, there's a, there's a danger that some of, some of these things that La France Insoumise has worked so hard to to push forward it it some its its personalities and it, some of its attachment to a uh, overly zealous theoretical notion of populism. Uh, that that holds back these democratic and egalitarian aspects of the movement. Jacob, I really appreciate you being on our show. This is fascinating writing, and we didn't even get into the aspects of how uh, La France Insoumise is using the media, how it's using it in a different way, how it's using social media in a way that it hasn't been used before in French politics. So people should go check out your article. You, all they have to do is go to our website and click on the link, and it takes you directly to his uh, Jacob's article at Descent. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Thank you, Chuck. See you next time. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. African-American farmer settlements were throughout what was then called the Northwest Territories and are now Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. That's right. African-American farmers settled the Great Lakes region. And in so doing, they experienced an unprecedented level of equality, freedom, 
wealth, and power. So what happened to the rural black farmer in, your, in our region? You're not going to like the answer, but you will hear it when we speak with historian Annalisa Cox, who wrote the new book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers, and the Struggle for Equality. Join us in two weeks, 14 days, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning, let's say, 3 p.m. until whenever. Again, that's our third annual 20th anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show, also featuring live music. There will also be a raffle. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and going until they close the doors. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and so far 151 listeners have. And 149 gave us the highest rating, 5 out of 5 stars. We got a 4-star rating from someone who wrongly believes This Is Hell is not God's favorite radio show. And we got a 1-star rating because, well, we work for Vladimir Putin, apparently, so that seems to be fair. This week we got a 5-star rating from Elizabeth in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Elizabeth writes, Thoughtful and forward-thinking, not pimped by capitalism. Thank you, Chuck. Well... I think we're all pimped by capitalism, but thank you for the thoughts. And you can rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And this week's question from hell is, what's the most ethical way to recirculate that counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? What's the most ethical way to recirculate that counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got. All replies get read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. And our favorite wins, well, $5. Though we cannot guarantee the authenticity of those $5. Again, the question from Al is, what's the most ethical way to recirculate the counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our evil content upon your innocent neighbors, email us your local radio stations. Call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. And some of you are already suggesting local stations for us to include in our burgeoning Not the Media Radio Network. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com, chuck at thisishell.com. And while you're at it, why not email your local station and tell them why your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, black farmer settlements on the American frontier beginning in the late 18th century experienced freedom and equality until the Klan wiped them out in the 20th century. Who needs to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border when Americans have already built a wall of indifference between themselves and the rest of the world? The Electronic Freedom Foundation is a corporate front for Google and Facebook. During a singular moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin gets tangled in time and space, which sounds pretty cool. All that stuff, plus rotten history, which we didn't get to yet. Listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, who knows. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, This Is Hell. 
ready to have your mind blown? African-American farmers settled the region that would later become the Great Lakes states of Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan. And they did it while experiencing unprecedented levels of freedom, equality, power, and wealth starting shortly after the Revolutionary War. Here to reveal some fascinating history that was nearly forgotten and tell us what happened to African-American farmer settlements in the rural Great Lakes, historian Annalisa Cox is author of The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers, and the Struggle for Equality. Welcome to This Is Hell, Annalisa. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Uh, You can find out more about Annalisa at AnnalisaCox.com. She is also the author of the 2007 book, A Stranger, I'm sorry, A Stronger Kinship, One Town's Extraordinary Story of Hope and Faith. And and she's also an award-winning historian. At the front of your book is what you describe as a map of a reality that no one thought existed, of a population that most have considered impossible, a population of successful African-American pioneers integrating America's first free frontier. The map is of what was called the Northwest Territory, which includes Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. And the uh, map shows hundreds of settlements that had at least one farm owned by an African-American, and those farms range from being less than 200 acres to more than 1,000 acres. How much is frontier history whitewashed, if you will? How much has the African-American experience been erased from that frontier history? Oh, my. Well, you did a wonderful job of summing that up, Uh, although I have to say the map is only a tiny part of the story. Uh, It does show the extraordinary levels of success and wealth that were achieved by these early American frontiers coming out to this first free frontier, right? It's hard for us to think about this. This is the flyover region, right? And I know you're based in Chicago. so uh, And I lived in Chicago for a while, and all of us feel the sting of that Midwestern term, right? Uh, And in fact, I don't use the word Midwest once in my book, because In reality, for the period that I'm looking at this history, it wasn't the Midwest. It was just the West. Some people actually called it the Great West. But when this frontier was first carved out and opened up as a territory, there was no other frontier. There was no Louisiana Purchase. Uh, There was just this frontier and the rest of the colonies, right? 1787. And uh, this was a really interesting period in our nation's past. I feel like it's the other part that we've buried uh, in American history. The fact that the revolution truly was revolutionary, that this founding generation, not, not just the founding fathers, but the actual citizens of this nation who were trying to create a nation in that 30 or 40 years after we won the Revolutionary War, really did hold a lot of those ideals of the Declaration of Independence to heart. Not all of them, of course, but a great many of them did. And they were black and they were white. And they really did believe those words, all men are created equal. So you had this large population of free African-Americans moving out onto this frontier, getting some of the best land, farming it well at a time when That was the American dream, right? Uh, This was before factories, before cities, before the city of Chicago. So they're out there, and uh, they're doing an incredible job. And then, unfortunately, there's backlash. Yes. uh, So... You know, while you're replying to that, I was thinking, were were the early days of the United States then, uh, after the uh, American Revolutionary War is over, 
Were they more revolutionary and radical than we understand within our conventional wisdom, within the way that we have been taught history? And if that is the case, why why do you think we weren't taught this more revolutionary and radical reaction to the American Revolution? Boy, why we bury history, that's that's a complicated issue, right? Uh, Especially if things that happened in the past make us feel uncomfortable. And, you know, the history, the lessons of the past and the American past are not all just doom and despair, Um, although there's a lot of that. Uh, But what we can learn from this founding generation is really astounding. It kind of turns the whole idea of constitutional conservatism on its head. Uh, The idea that when George Washington ran for president second term in 1792, the vast majority of American states, including a lot of slave states, as well as the Northwest Territorial Frontier, had equal voting rights for blacks and whites. And, you know, True, you had to be male and you had to own property, uh, but that was what citizenship looked like. And entire states were actually removing the word white from their constitution to open up the vote. Uh, New Jersey actually briefly opened it up to women. So this is there's some interesting things happening during this period, and it's those values that these African-American pioneers and their allies are bringing to this great West frontier, oftentimes before statehood. And they are, you know, founding incredible communities and settlements. They're creating underground railroad routes with whites. They're uh, founding radical schools. I mean, there's so much history here. I think it would probably take a hundred historians 100 years to cover it all. This book is just the beginning, but I would urge people to take a look at it because it does include so much that's been lost about the past before the Civil War in this nation. Were you surprised at the extent of African-American farm ownership in the Great Lakes region prior to the Civil War? What, What was your first clue that this actually had happened? Uh, I was surprised. This was not the book I started off to write. Uh, I, When I started off writing this book, the assumption was that maybe there were a handful, maybe a dozen such settlements where there were successful land-owning African-American pioneering farmers out there in Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin before the Civil War. Uh, the assumption has been for so long that this has been a homogeneously white region in its rural areas, right? But that whiteness didn't occur without effort. Uh, Some of the earliest anti-immigration laws ever created in this nation were created before the Civil War against people with brown skin because they were proving way too successful in the regions that uh, whites, a lot of whites are feeling like should be their region and their region only. But I was, I was really surprised. It was kind of hidden in plain sight. A lot of these I found on census records, but some of them I had to really go to local archives and dig around in massive old 200-year-old deed books to find. Um, Interestingly enough, as I've been on book tour, in almost every place I've gone, whether it's Washington, D.C. or New York City, there has been a descendant of one of these pioneering families in attendance 
but invariably they have assumed that they are unique, that their settlement was unique or their family was unique. But this is actually a movement. This is this is our first great migration, right? So this is this is not just one-off or an exceptional situation. These are African Americans rising in this most precious region of the United States in its earliest years. Did the U.S. incentivize African Americans to move to the Great Great Lakes region, settle, and even take land from Native Americans? Was this about getting rights you you couldn't get elsewhere in exchange for displacing Native Americans? Uh, Well, right. Frontiers are complicated spaces, and they're not pretty. And the American frontier was a place of extraordinary violence and genocide. And yes, some African Americans who were coming out here were, were becoming Indian agents and were actually fighting indigenous people in the War of 1812 along the Wabash River. They were building forts um, along that river before statehood in the territorial days in order to combat and chase away and destroy the rights of indigenous people in that region. But it's a complicated history because some African Americans, especially earlier ones, were living with and working with uh, the indigenous people of the region. So it's this is this is a really really complicated history, but I haven't found a lot of examples of the of the federal government incentivizing uh, people. This was these were African Americans who felt deeply rooted in American soil. These are descendants of Revolutionary War soldiers. These are people whose families had lived and raised their families on American soil since the 1600s. So of course they feel like this is their frontier and they have a right to it. Uh, And in some cases, they actually came to this frontier leaving behind some of their civil rights. African Americans in North Carolina could vote well into the 1830s when they could not vote in Indiana or Ohio or Illinois, because as soon as those states were carved out from the territory, whites, who were the majority in those states, took away and stole the right of African-Americans to vote in these regions. Uh, You write how uh, African-American farms and families on the frontier, while also keeping alive the dream that had given birth to their homes and their new nation, a dream of a country where all men are created equal and there could be liberty and justice for all. Yet, you know, last September, we were talking to Herb Boyd, author of Black Detroit, A People's History of Self-Determination. He writes in his book, although slavery was outlawed in the state of Michigan, there were many instances in which slave catchers and bounty hunters ignored the law. There were also too many cases in which the government had to be pressured to enforce measures in protecting blacks that had been in place more or less since the enactment of the Northwest Ordinance in 1787. That's the ordinance that gave this land to uh, African-American farmer settlements. And Taya Miles' book on the subject, The Dawn of Detroit, a chronicle of slavery and freedom in the city of the Straits, has won tons of awards. So how much was any liberty and justice that African-American farmers that had come to the Northwest Territories and their families, how much was that uh, experience prior to the Civil War and dating back to the 18th century, how much was that limited by or even challenged by slavery? Well, slavery was certainly active in the Northwest Territory. I mean, in any situation where you have um, free labor that one can cheaply work to death, 
then uh, a lot of white people were going to take advantage of it. it. There was a general assumption among white enslavers that, the ter- that a territory, a New World territory, was impossible to settle without enslaved people, that this work was too hard and too tough for free people to voluntarily or willingly do. So um, uh, our later president, Governor Harrison, who was the governor of the Indiana Territory, which was a territory that covered what would later become Illinois and Wisconsin and Indiana and Michigan, tried very, very hard to turn this into a slave region. And in fact, the state of Illinois practically broke out in civil war in the early 1820s over whether to become a slave state or not. I think there were some whites in the state, very, very powerful and wealthy ones, who were quite inspired by what happened in Missouri with the Missouri Compromise. And uh, so they tried to force through a new state constitution in the early 1820s which would illegalize slavery in the state of Illinois. And uh, battles were breaking out. I mean, the, the Civil War and, and the issues that we have in this nation, both before the Civil War and after, have never just been about slavery and freedom. The other dichotomy we have dealt with is equality versus inequality, or justice versus injustice, where race is concerned. And I want to get back to those that debate in just a moment. But you write, African-American farming families often did not want themselves or their farms counted on federal documents before the Civil War. This is unsurprising, given the anti-immigration laws, the fugitive slave laws, and the unjust taxation policies in these states. So to what degree, then, is this an unknown history of African-American uh, farmer settlements throughout the uh, Great Lakes region? Because African-American farmer farm owners wanted, at the time, the ownership of their land to not be known, to be kept secret. How secretive did African-American farmers have to be about the land they owned, and how much did that secrecy become an obstacle to knowing this history? Well, there were a few instances where that was the case, definitely. And one of the more notable ones is John Langston, who was our nation's first freely elected African-American politician before the Civil War. It didn't happen in Boston. didn't happen in New York. It happened in rural Ohio in 1855. And he ran for office and won it. Uh, He was elected by a largely white uh, electorate. And he was also Ohio's first African-American lawyer. And he owned a very, very successful farm, very large farm, which he actually had a, a white couple from England managing. And he refused in protest to have his farm and himself and his family counted on any federal census records. So that has to, you have to go to land deeds to find out how, just how successful his farm was, local land deeds. But not everybody was doing that. And bluntly, despite this being the frontier, there were actually a lot of spaces where whites and African Americans were working together to try to create a culture of equality. And some of the stuff that they were doing out there was truly revolutionary. I mean, think about it. If an African-American owns a farm, an African-American family owns a farm of 700 acres, they're not exactly secret. I keep thinking of that scene in Hidden Figures about the African-American women working for NASA in the 1960s. And that woman who goes into a top secret room filled with white generals and scientists stands in front of all of them and 
is writing on a blackboard, well, she's only one person, right? But she's highly, highly visible. And she's highly influential in that particular region. And these wealthy African-American farmers had the same level of visibility because in order to be a successful farmer, especially before the technology we're used to today, when you had to plow with a single-bladed plow or harvest with a scythe, you needed to hire a lot of people to harvest your grain in the fall. And an African-American farming family with close to 1,000 acres of land, especially most of that land under cultivation, in the fall, they're hiring most able-bodied people in their county to harvest their grain for them, white or black. So their levels of visibility, they're not going to stay hidden. They're not going to stay secret. And in fact, most of the time, they weren't trying to stay hidden. They didn't want to be counted in federal documents, but they were organizing in extraordinary ways, uh, creating black convention movements, which in Ohio actually turned back the clock and reversed some of the racist laws in Ohio because of these uh, political organizations that they were creating despite the fact they couldn't vote. You quote white abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who had been publishing the Liberator newspaper in Boston since the 1830s, uh, after he had traveled in the 1850s to the Great Lakes region, to the Northwest Territories, to see what was happening in the area that he had been reporting on for quite a while. You quote Garrison writing about, uh, upon his return from the West, it is not on the American soil that the great debate, the conflict of the ages, is to be settled as to the equality of the human race, human brotherhood, the value of man as man, settled not as an abstract theory, but by a practical recognition of the world-reconciling fact, settled not with mountains or oceans intervening, but with people of every clime and race standing side by side, grouped together in one common locality, literally neighbors, daily looking each other in the face, and continually interchanging the kindness and courtesies of civilized life. To what extent do you think that great debate, what Garrison called the conflict of the ages, was then and still is to this very day at the heart of the meaning of the United States? Is that the great debate that we have always had since 1776 or 1787 or throughout the history of the United States? Well, obviously, I'm a bit biased because this is the kind of history that I research. But I would argue that there are some issues that the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s have not fixed, shall we say. I think at any point in the United States, when a majority group or those in power sort of dust off their hands and say, well, we fixed that problem. We don't have it anymore. That's the moment when it's probably roaring back. And this issue, the roots of these issues can be seen in this region going back so early. The fact that racism did not arise in the face of African-American failure, but in the face of African-American success, everything from the stripping of the right to vote to anti-immigration laws, even um, the right to marry who people chose. Uh, freely to marry, early early laws banning marriage between African Americans and whites. These are all occurring so much earlier than we could have occurred, than we could have imagined, but also in response to an earlier equal rights movement, earlier than we, I think, imagined. So unless we know these patterns, unless we can see them occurring, 
unless we become aware of them, then it's very difficult to know where we stand today and what we're dealing with today and the issues that we're dealing with today and just how deep the, the, those issues' roots go in our nation. You point out that as Garrison wrote about people of every clime and race standing side by side as neighbors, he was not envisioning some grand imagined experiment, some ideal future. He was describing a reality that he knew existed across most of the Great West. He was writing about a population in that region that most historians today believe never existed, but it did. Did African-American farmers and whites, did they live, as Garrison described, continually interchanging the kindnesses and courtesies of civilized life? Because what he writes not only sounds utopian for the time, it sounds utopian even to this day. (laughs) Well, Garrison did have a nice turn of phrase, uh, but he himself knew and had friends who knew very, very well that this was not the, the norm across the Midwest that there were also regions where terrible violence was occurring against African-American farmers, where people were being driven out at gunpoint, where their barns are being burned, where schools were being burned, where women were being ridden out, tarred and feathered and ridden out on a rail uh, for marrying African-Americans that this was not some kind of utopian region, but that there were places and spaces where African-Americans and their white allies were pushing forward equality in truly revolutionary ways, although oddly by the 1830s, those ways were considered rather old-fashioned or kind of conservative. Some of these old white curmudgeons kind of like old hippies, right, in the Ohio government in the 1830s with all the young upstarts basically saying to them, oh, come on, slavery's growing again. It's the way that this nation's going to grow, and we've got to get rid of that old old men are created equal hogwash, right? The amount of scorn for the Declaration of Independence that was rising in this nation in the 1820s and 1830s is really astounding, except that once in a while— I'll listen to the news and people talking about hierarchy or equality and realize maybe this isn't an issue that has been put to rest either. So how integrated, or for that matter, how segregated was the frontier? Well, the frontier always starts off as highly, highly integrated. Integration is not always, of course, the answer. Equality is the answer. I mean, slavery in itself is a form of deep racial intimacy and integration. It just happens to be a a horrific, horrifically unjust one, right? Um, But the frontier, and Toni Morrison points this out in her wonderful novel, A Mercy, which discusses life in Virginia in the 1680s and 1690s, is always a messy place. You know, indigenous people and African-descended people and Europeans and people of different... uh, social and economic backgrounds and religious backgrounds, all trying to get ahead in the same space. So one of the things that I really want to say clearly to your listeners is that diversity in America is not an add-on. It's how things usually start on the frontier. It's segregation. It's sort of one particular group living in a particular region which is the add-on. It it often has to be violently created, right? A homogeneous society, an all-white town or an all-white community or an all-white school has to be created. Then, of course, it takes some work to 
add back diversity back in, right? Right. Uh, were African Americans then the, the the ones who ended up uh, creating the farmer settlements? Were they not only fleeing the East for a chance at land in the West, but also fleeing urban settings in the East because of any racism they may have more regularly encountered in cities than they believe they would in a more rural setting? Were they, were they fleeing not just for – were they being pulled by the chance at free land or were they being pushed by racism? Well, there was definitely a push-me-pull-you situation here. And the urban areas of the North, including the Northwest Territory states, were invariably more violent, more segregated, and more racist than the rural and frontier regions. And in fact, the cities of the North by the 1830s were a place that were almost impossible for free African-Americans to rise in. The level of violence that was sweeping our cities in the 1830s, this is not just New York and D.C. and Boston. This is all the cities. I mean, Cincinnati and Utica, you name it. They are being swept with levels of racist violence, schools, churches, meeting halls, orphanages are being burned down. People are being lynched all to stop equality. That's just stunning. Uh, But what about, let's just uh, put African-American farmers aside for a second, even though I know that that's the topic of this conversation. Were settlers of all races fleeing to find the kind of freedoms that the new United States supposedly guaranteed in its founding documents, but wasn't actually doing in practice? How much does your research reveal the lack of freedoms Americans experience in cities of all races at the beginning of the United States? Well, oddly enough, especially in the 1830s, more freedoms were being offered to whites. Uh, It's interesting, there's a shift occurring, especially about voting rights, which have a real, make a real difference, where all of a sudden, as long as one is white and one is male, you could be landless, um, possibly not own property, and in some cases, not even be born in the United States. And all of a sudden, your whiteness alone is a chance for you to get ahead and to be able to vote. And just as African Americans are proving how well they can work, how entrepreneurial they are, how successful and they are, and how quickly they can rise. Their rights tied to property ownership are beginning to be destroyed. Uh, you know, President Jackson was certainly a populist president, but for a particular group of people, not not everyone. So um, there's there's some interesting on the ground reports from people from England who are traveling around places like Indiana and Ohio in the 1830s. And they're saying, you know, for a while, it looked like whites and African-Americans were getting along pretty well in the earliest frontier stages. But now that African-Americans are doing better than whites and whites are streaming into this region and finding that African-Americans have these large settled farms and lovely homes and thriving families, there's jealousy seems to be arising. Um, Violence starts arising. Um, And that's that's a very that's a, a great grief. But it was not unresisted. It was not unresisted. And I want to get to what happens to the African-American farmer settlements in a moment. But was it any easier for African-Americans settling in the West? Were they more welcomed by Native Americans than whites? That's a tough question. 
I would say for this particular wave of American-born African-descended pioneers who are coming out after the American Revolution, that on the whole, their project was at odds with the goals and aims of indigenous people. Because the project of African-American pioneers was to be pioneers, was to own good land and farm it well. And that, so they were often extremely hostile to local indigenous people. Not in all cases, but in many. So that is an aspect of this history, which is also very painful and very difficult. Um, But oddly enough, as the years went by, white politicians started lumping in African-Americans with their dark skin, with indigenous people, and calling for their death and destruction, or even for genocide, in the same way that Native Americans had been destroyed. So is there any evidence then that African-Americans were any more or less conflicted about their role on the frontier, knowing that they would displace Native Americans? Hmm. That is going to take a lot more historians, a lot more work. (laughs) (laughs) That is what I came across is a few uh, examples of African-Americans, rather like the Buffalo Soldiers, right, after the Civil War, who were Indian agents who were actively working to uh, battle Native Americans. But I've also come across examples, even after the Civil War, of African-Americans and Indigenous people who were working together uh, in places like Michigan. In fact, an incredible uh, story of the uh, Morris family who helped settle Boyne City, Michigan. And she was uh, she was widowed. Her husband was shot by racist whites, and she only, she and her family only survived because of the the support of local indigenous people in that region, who got her through the winter by giving her food, and uh, that was a very close relationship. So it's it's a large region and it's a complicated history, but certainly. Uh, African-American pioneers coming into this region were displacing indigenous people. You write these pioneers reflected almost all the faces of African-American freedom. Some were first generation free, but some came from families who had been free for centuries and were literate landowners in the slave South. Many of these long free families could trace their liberty back to the 17th century and had fathers or other relatives who had fought as patriots in the Revolutionary War. But while some were freed, some had purchased their freedom and some were generations free. All of these successful landowning pioneers chose to be farmers. What do we miss in understanding the African-American experience in the earliest years of the United States and when the U.S. was still a set of British-controlled colonies when we believe that all African-Americans during that period must have had some experience somewhere within their ancestry of slavery? And does that belief reveal some level of racism, not only in our history, but maybe in us when we believe that all African-Americans must have all had some experience with slavery. Well, to be clear, most African-descended people who arrived on these shores arrived unwillingly. Um, Most were brought in enslaved. Very, very few were brought in free or came free. A few did, but most did not. That does not mean that they did not become very quickly free. Uh, 
uh, Ira Berlin in his book, uh, Slaves Without Masters, actually talks about a couple extremely wealthy African-American farmers who were living in what is now Virginia in the 1650s. In fact, they seem to be enslaving local indigenous people. So there has long been a history of free African-descended people in the New World. Uh, But whether their ancestors were brought here enslaved or not does not negate the fact that they had agency after the Revolutionary War. Free African-Americans had agency, they had choice, and they were choosing to settle this frontier, and they were choosing to become farmers. They were choosing to settle this land and to be Americans. And I think that if we forget that aspect of it um, and make the history of the antebellum period just about slavery and freedom rather than that other dichotomy of equality versus inequality or justice versus injustice, this large population of free African-Americans and what they were fighting for and what they were battling for before the Civil War, we lose an incredibly important aspect of our American past. And the incredible, unprecedented inequality and freedom that the African-American farmer settlements experienced is its just mind-blowing. But to what extent was there any resurgence of racism and even threats to inequality in the North following the Civil War that was supposed to be the end of slavery? And, and if there was any resurgence, what to you, what explains that resurgence of racism after a war that was supposedly against racism? Ah, but that war was not against racism. That war was against slavery. Those are two very different things. I often say when I'm on book tour that when Abraham Lincoln gave his final speech, which he, of course, envisioned as his first speech at the end of the Civil War, he was shot and killed by a Southerner. But he could just as easily easily have been shot and killed by a Northerner by somebody from his own home state of Illinois, where the Copperhead movement had risen with such force and virulence uh, during the Civil War in this region among whites that briefly in Indianapolis, uh, Copperheads who were Southern supporters, Confederate supporters, took over a federal um, sort of place where arms were being kept and tried to get Indiana to join the Confederacy. So this is a war, when we think about North versus South, it oversimplifies things. The struggle for equality, the struggle against prejudice. And I, those of, those of your listeners who actually read the book, and I urge them to because there's so much details I'm leaving out here, but I don't use the word racism once because it's a 20th century term. I use the word prejudice because it's what our founding generation and the revolutionary thinkers who gave rise to the best ideals of the American Revolution used. The term prejudice is what can infect the body politic. It can infect people and their hearts and minds so that they stop thinking of their fellow citizens as fellow citizens. And in this strange experiment started over 200 years ago, called a democratic republic, when that happens, that's a very, very dangerous place for us to be in as a nation. 
You write that by 1924, the front page of a dark county newspaper proudly trumpeted the large and popular gathering of the KKK at the county fairgrounds, following, followed by a grand clan parade through the streets of the county seat of Greenville, Ohio. To what extent, then, did the U.S. become more, I won't use racist, more prejudiced uh, after the Civil War and increasingly in the early 20th century? Well, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were real advancements in this nation, not just in the South, but in the North, in the Great West, in the Midwest. And there was terrible backlash against that. And there's long been puzzlement among historians as to why the Klan arose with such force and virulence in the rural Midwest in the 1910s and 1920s, because the assumption has always been that that was basically a homogeneous region. But what we now know is it wasn't. And the Klan was rising for a reason. And it, for many of the farmers who are still on their land today in this region, the African-American farmers, some of whom are farming in counties where African-Americans have been farming for over 200 years, they describe this as being one of the darkest times. It was basically like the dark ages. They had to move off of their scattered farms into small villages where they could, and, and they had to arm themselves. They had warning bells uh, to make sure that if the clan attacked, they could fend them off. But of course, direct attack, burning and gunfights is not always the most effective way to starve a group of people out. Um, you can enact laws. You can refuse to build roads. You can A bank can refuse to give loans. The federal government can refuse to give loans to African-American farmers. There are many, many ways to destroy a population in this country. So uh, is rural America white in Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan? Because white people violently forced African Americans who settled that land off of their rightfully owned land? That is going to take another book to figure out. But the just scratching at the surface of that, because my book actually ends with the Civil War, but just looking at this a little bit, it looks like there was that prejudice and violence arose to the level of warfare in some of these regions of the Midwest. And some of these settlements were starved out and um, violently chased out in ways that are going to require a lot of historians, a lot of work to figure out. But that, that really disturbing photograph from the 1930s that a lot of people know of, of two young men hanging in a tree with whites underneath pointing up at them as if they're at some county fair. That photograph actually inspired the song Strange Fruit. That is an incident that happened in Indiana. It wasn't Mississippi, and it wasn't Georgia. It was Indiana. And that particular county had been home to a very early and very successful African-American pioneering community that by the early 1840s had their own church and thriving farms. So this kind of backlash, this kind of violence is not coincidental. And unless we understand these patterns in the North, not just the South, but in the North, we will not be able to understand what's happening now. 
but we can also look to the past for hope because these African-American farmers and pioneers would not have been coming out to this region unless there was this revolutionary document called the Northwest Territorial Ordinance of 1787. And I would really encourage people, especially on this July 4th weekend holiday, to go to the Library of Congress website and read it. Because while it's not perfect, it is extraordinary. And if they can find the word white anywhere in that document as a way of defining equal rights under the law or in politics, I will personally give them $5. (laughs) And I stand by that. I will stand by that. You write there are, as you were mentioning earlier, there are still other communities, other home places, whether the homes are still there or not, of African-American farmer settlements. Reunions are still held, and people are working to preserve the past and hold on to farms in the present. Lyle Station, Indiana, is one of those communities. Frequent flooding has long since washed away many of the oldest buildings in the area. So when you do find communities that still have legacy farms by African-American farmers, are they farms that are in places that whites simply didn't want to farm? Are there farms, the ones that face problems white farmers simply didn't want to deal with? No, (laughs) they're there because of extraordinary courage and tenacity. They're there despite everything, because they're there on some of the best land in this nation. The Morris family is still farming land along the Wabash River in Illinois. And that family came out in the earliest territorial days around 1800 to build Fort Allison. And they're still on land there. And that land is highly desirable land. This is much of this land, whether it's in Western Ohio or Eastern Illinois, is still highly desirable farmland. They are there uh, because they, they hung on. even. But that hanging on has become harder and harder. Um, and it's, it's difficult. Farming is a difficult lifestyle. A lot of these communities, the average age of the farmers is about 75. And it's hard to convince the next generation um, to farm, given the long and painful history in these regions. But that's beginning to change. And not all of these communities were destroyed. Um, some of them are still there, again, hiding in plain sight. But it's been made, this history has been made more difficult to follow by an extraordinary level of resistance to preserve this history. So I've been working with a number of organizations, local organizations across this region to preserve old school buildings and homes, um, including John Langston's home in Oberlin, Ohio, uh, that I am aware of where there has been very, very little financial aid or support at the state level for the preservation of these homes. I've come across incidents where pioneering fine sort of mansions and beautiful farmhouses have literally been burned by county officials uh, in in the 20th century, just sort of 10 years ago. in, when you don't preserve, when you refuse to acknowledge this history, when sort of state historical societies or organizations which have state or even access to federal funds refuse to support the preservation of these buildings that show just how successful these African-American farmers were, then it's another erasure. It's another form of violence. Um, to these, to this history, basically. 
We have been speaking with historian Annalisa Cox. She is author of The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. You can find out more about Annalisa at AnnalisaCox.com. One last question for you, Annalisa, and it's what we do with all of our, the final guest for all of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate <laughs> to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, these were not colorblind communities. They knew their history, but awareness of any kind of difference, whether they're, whether hair follicles or faith, does not have to result in prejudice. And these communities prove that while recognition of uh, White, uh, while recognition of difference may be common, prejudice is a choice. They followed the very simple principle that the African-American leaders of the 1844 Ohio Convention advocated, do to others as you would have them do to you. If prejudice is a choice, then it must be something that can be overcome. So this is the question from hell. Why is prejudice so difficult to overcome? Why would anyone choose, if it is a choice, to be prejudiced? Oh, my heavens. <laughs> Can I go to hell instead? <laughs> That's a tough one. You know, it's one that kept hitting me as I studied this book, and anybody who reads it will see examples. There's some ways in which prejudice makes sense, right? If one can gain more power or possibly more wealth, if one can shore up one's pride, Though it seems like a fragile way to do it. Um, the question of prejudice, I have to admit, is almost the question of evil, which I have to admit better minds than mine have been grappling with for a lot longer than I have been around. But it is in some ways illogical when a group of 100 white men marched on a successful and wealthy African-American farmer's home outside of Evansville, Indiana. Some of them were injured. Some of them even lost their lives in the attempt to kill a family on their farm. Well, that same year, within a few years of that incident, whites freely elected an African-American to political office in that same region, in the Midwest. One group of whites ended up harming themselves. For what? For pride? For the chance to get land that they coveted? And the other group actually got a very good leader, a very good township clerk who led them well. So one side put aside prejudice and gained something good. The other side took hold of prejudice and lost their lives for it. So the question of why people would pick prejudice when ultimately it takes destruction and violence to create is one I'm afraid I'm still puzzling over. But if your readers read the book and have any answers, I'd be glad to hear from them. <laughs> All right. And you can find out more about Annalisa Cox at AnnalisaCox.com. Again, her book is The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers, and The Struggle for Equality. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This is a fascinating book. It's one of my very favorites that I have read so far this year for the show. So thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Truly revolting radio. This is hell. There's absolutely no need to build a wall to stop immigrants from coming into the U.S. without documentation along the U.S.-Mexico border. 
Why? Because we already built a wall of indifference that's doing a fantastic job at keeping immigrants out already. We'll have that wall described to us and how well it works in a few minutes when we hear from journalist Eileen Truax, who wrote the new book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and beyond. Let's go to the update booth with Alex and Leo. Alex, let's find out what you've been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on Facebooks, Twitters, and whatnot? Oh, on Facebook earlier this week, I posted our interview on the a transcript of our interview on the societal transformation of neoliberalism with Julie Cooper. Uh, it's up in transcript form from Anecdote Zine. It's really good, so take a look at that one. Um, also, I posted a piece from Anna Clark's new book on Flint, Michigan, called "Nothing to Worry About: The Water Is Fine." How Flint Poisoned Its People. That's from a larger book that she did. And there's a big, long piece of The Guardian. So you can go to our Facebook page, com slash Facebook to read a, a long excerpt from that book. And then also, speaking of long things, uh, I posted a very long uh, monthly review article earlier this week called The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism, and the Metabolic Rift that I liked a lot um, on Twitter. Uh, past guest uh, two weeks ago we were called fabulous you remember when we were called fabulous oh, yeah, by a past yeah. guest uh, this week we were called mephitic, mephitic. that was by Rob Larson <laughs> mephitic um, also uh, I shared a are, can you tell me what that means no it's probably like <laughs> it's probably you know it probably means fabulous actually okay. it's probably similar to fabulous All right. um, and then I also shared uh, the most hellish sentence from last week's show I shared that on Twitter and it was um it was Ed Bermilla saying, in a capitalist system, you're never really out of resources as long as you're willing to host a prison. <laughs> I'm like, starting to pay attention to the uh, best sentence from every week's show. And then on Instagram, I shared uh, listener David G uh, improved a bunch of local billboards in his neighborhood, uh, and actually including a Sean Hannity uh, billboard. So you see Sean Hannity's gross face and then the words, this is hell coming out of it, which really warmed my heart. Oh, and then also... I'll, oh, thanks, David. I, I really appreciate that. Take the rest of my time to say the question from hell that we're going to be talking about, which is the $5 bill that I got counterfeit in. Um, if you were at office hours last week, you would have seen it. And uh, you would have heard me talking mo- more and more about it because it was the most exciting thing that happened to me all week. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious how legal it is for us to give somebody a counterfeit bill. Uh, what makes you think probably that we're, what brought. makes you think we're giving anyone a counterfeit bill <laughs> right. by saying that you win five dollars for winning? <laughs> it's time for listener feedback. We got an update from a listener who you may remember emailed us a couple weeks ago. William Van Nada, he is skipper of the Golden Rule Peace uh, Boat, who told us to check out a Veterans for Peace project called VFPGoldenRuleProject.com, and the skipper explained how he and his shipmates are recreating a sailing mission to the Marshall Islands in 1958 to stop nuclear testing and war. Voyage of the Golden Rule, as it was called, by Albert Bigelow. He also informed us that the Golden Rule peace boat was the boat that inspired Greenpeace Rainbow Warrior. Well, apparently the skipper is now out at sea, as he writes to us at chuck at thisishell.com, saying greetings from Will on board the Golden Rule Peace Boat. So, Alex, we got to get Will on the air. Maybe during our July 21st show, uh, before that week, that afternoon's afternoon party uh, and art show, maybe we can have a live interview with uh, Will, the skipper of the Golden Rule Peace Boat. Jack wrote to us at chuck at com. Hey, Chuck, just read this piece in 
on the new Arab website. That's utterly terrifying, but I also would like to know more, and perhaps you could get the author on. Seems suitably hellish. Thanks, Jack. The article Jack sent us is headlined, How America's Wars Fund Inequality at Home which is a subject we discussed earlier this year when Phyllis Bennis was on the show back on May 12th. So if listeners want to hear a conversation on that topic, they can go back and listen to our interview with Phyllis Bennis at thisishell.com. But Jack, we will definitely look into this because I think the author takes a slightly different angle on militarism, making Americans poor than Phyllis did. Tom writes to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio about an interview we did on last week's show. Hi, Chuck. Was it just a coincidence that you picked the Roman Catholic Feast of the First Martyrs of Rome Day to interview Catherine Nixie, author of The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World? There are no coincidences in hell, or maybe are there only coincidences in hell? Hmm. Happy First Martyrs of Rome Day in any case. No coincidence, Tom. As most of our listeners know, those who've been paying attention, every year we celebrate First Martyrs of Rome Day by trying to piss off Christians. It's what we do. Fergus writes to us via facebook.com slash Radio. Hi, I'd like to raise several points. One, that the regular mispronunciation of my name is endlessly amusing, and as a result, I will never correct you. Fergus, Fergus, uh, there are so few advantages to my parents' dyslexia that I will seize this one. Second, that if I had known my message would be read out, I would have put a lot more effort into it, especially my recommendation of Peter Coffin. I'm sure that you have looked him up and his book since my recommendation, but I wanted to emphasize that he captures how neoliberal thought shapes and forces our entire being, as well as our public discourse, better than anyone I have ever listened to, and that includes several months of listening to your fantastic show, This Is Hell. That is why I think he would be perfect for This Is Hell, because what could be better than someone explaining how we are corrupting, how we are corrupted to believing that this is hell and that there's nothing we can do about it than someone who tells us how that happens? My third and final point is a recommendation I'm certain you have received repeatedly, but it's for having the economist. Richard Wolff on your show, who I think is the best entry point for anyone who still labors under the delusion that the current capitalist system can be reformed, to the real world accepting that the bare minimum is democratic socialism, with worker co-ops at the forefront. Feel free to edit this so it doesn't sound ridiculous on air. I love the show and honestly believe it's the best source of information in our hellish present. Thanks to everyone involved for making the world a slightly less less hellish place. Too late, Fergus. Didn't do any editing there. Peter's book, by the way, is called Custom Reality and You and is described this way. Nothing has changed more in the last few decades than our concept and perception of reality. The effects have manifested in our news, entertainment, and Google searches. We're finding that a lot of things we thought were objective aren't automatically so. Reality is not a concept we want to flush down the toilet with yesterday's food. However, we must begin to understand how it works in a world where profit is the driving force. Sounds good, Fergus. And thanks for being amused by my mispronunciation of your name, which is my own homage. A shout-out to the undertones, Fergal Sharky. Great band. Look him up. We got a direct message on Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio, from at Anarcho Murphy, 
on our interview with Stephen V. Miller and Nicholas T. Davis, co-authors of a new study, White Outgroup Intolerance and Declining Support for American Democracy. The study describes how hate for the other, including racism, is in direct opposition to democracy and thus undermines democracy. In other words, racists hate democracy. At Anarcho Murphy writes, The problem with the otherwise fascinating segment on a recent This Is Hell titled The White Authoritarians is that it works off the tired premise that the U.S. is a democracy. Certainly the U.S. is pluralistic to a degree, but it's never been a true democracy. Representatives are not constitutionally accountable to the will of the people. We have absolutely no control over what they do when they actually gain power. So our elections are nothing more than a popularity contest and now most often decided by money. Direct democracy now, he says, quite literally an elected oligarchy. That's what we have. How democratic. So it's not that people on the left are losing faith in democracy. We've never known true democracy beyond state ballot proposals, which are quite popular. We are tired of this facade called representative democracy. Let us build a new order based on popular assemblies. Agreed on all points, but at Anarcho Murphy... You really need to hear Steve Miller's response to the question from hell when I asked if the U.S. is a republic, as the right argues, or a democracy. Steve actually sounds like he's in pain while answering, and Nick says it's the best question from hell you can ask a political scientist. So go back and listen to the question from hell that I gave to Steve Miller at the end of the interview that you are discussing. Steve sent an email that surprised the hell out of me. Steve found it odd to find an interview with past guest David Graeber on his book, B.S. Jobs, in Guess What Media Outlet. I'll give you five seconds. Nope. It was The Economist. V- via email at chuck at com, we got another radio station suggestion for our burgeoning Not the Media Radio Network. This one is from Jason G., who writes, Chuck, or whatever minion is answering these emails these days, check out this radio station. It is somewhat the NUR of Buffalo, New York. They could use your show, either in full or an abbreviated form. Mondays are their Talk Mondays, with local programming from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., beginning with the uh, Voldemort show. I'm sorry, uh, Amy Goodman show, and then moving on to local politics, etc. They might be able to make a space for you. Check out wbny.buffalostate.edu. Keep up the good work, Jason. Man, i got to get me some minions. If you want to volunteer as a This Is Hell minion, email alex at thisishell.com. And thanks for the radio station suggestion, Jason. Braden sends us, this is all the way from Australia, a belated answer to a past question from hell. Uh, Hi, Chuck and Alex. I've always been keen for new Thomas Frank. In response to your question from hell, I think America's tombstone will probably include the flag and the Bring Me Your Huddled Masses plaque from the base of the Statue of Liberty, text mostly obscured by sexual graffiti, plastic rubbish, and bullet holes. Love from a sleepless Australian. Tried to message on Instagram. I'm a few months clean from my nasty Facebook habit. Braden S. Yay, yeah, Braden, I uh, I would definitely keep some Naxalone within reaching distance when uh, cruising around on any social media. It could mean the difference between life and death. Uh, and let's see, anything else I wanted to mention? Uh, I think it's about it. That's listener feedback. Email us at chuck at com. Message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio. 
This is Helen. This week's question from Helen is, what's the most ethical way for, for us to recirculate the counterfeit $5 bill, Alex Scott? What's the most ethical way to recirculate the counterfeit $5 bill, Alex Scott? I'll reply is read on air following our next guest. And the winner is going to get $5. Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during right after our, our next guest uh, to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. By the way, just in two weeks, Join us, that's two Saturdays from now, that's Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music. There will be food, too. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and going till whenever. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, who needs to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border when Americans have already built a wall of indifference between themselves and the rest of the world? The Electronic Freedom Foundation is a corporate front for Google and Facebook. During a singular moment of truth, Jeff gets tangled in time and space, which sounds pretty cool. All that plus rotten history, question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe twist off knowledge. And, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. We don't need to build a wall at the U.S.-Mexico border to keep immigrants out of the United States because we've already built a wall of indifference. Here to explain that wall to us and what can be done uh, about taking it down, journalist Eileen Truax wrote the new book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. Welcome to This Is Hell, Eileen. Hi, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me. Eileen is is also author of the 2015 book, Dreamers and Immigrant Generations Fight for Their American Dream. You can follow her on Twitter at Eileen Truax. That's T-R-U-A-X. And you can find out more about Eileen at EileenTruax.com. You discuss the so-called Muslim ban, the prohibition of people from Libya, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Yemen, and Somalia to enter the United States. You write about the protests that... Uh, ban originally caused, uh, saying, for the first time in many years, the United States took a hard look at itself and its policies of accepting and excluding refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, and people from other countries in general. Now, in May, we spoke with Rewired.News journalist Tina Vasquez, who called what President Obama created and left behind for the Trump administration a deportation machine, which is something Jacobin writer Katrina Moreno uh, also called it on our show way back in January of 2017. And a past guest, Daniel Denver, called Obama's policy the same thing back in November 2016, only weeks after Trump was elected. In your opinion, why did people in the United States only start taking a hard look at its policies of accepting and excluding refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, and people from other countries after Trump was elected and instituted the so-called Muslim ban? Why did it take that long? And why did it take uh, that hard? Because uh, obviously we are passing through maybe the hardest moment in uh, in that sense, in the country, I, I don't think that in a very long time we have had a such hard, open, anti-immigrant racist narrative coming from the White House. We have always known that we have this kind of narrative. We have always known that we have hate groups in, in this country. Uh, recently, the number of groups have been steady, but they have increased their activity, as you know, 
the FBI uh, tracked all of these groups, and there's a variety of them, um, a, a racist, anti-immigrant, KKK, white supremacy, there's a vast array. But uh, the, the, the thing here after Trump, and even during his campaign, is that all of this activity that we know that exists from many, many years ago starts to be visible and starts to be accepted. And I think that that might, seem, might be one of the reasons that made us think about it and realize that this is something that is happening to real people, not in our backyard, but here in the front of our house. And uh, that is something that now is openly accepted. I think the change in the narrative, not uh, the subject, but the way we speak about it and the way we allow things to happen is what suddenly sounds like an alarm here. Oh, God, we are anti-immigrant. Oh, we are racist. And we suddenly discovered that. It's very interesting what you, what you mentioned, uh, that many people have talked about the, the deportation machine in the past. And every know, every, everybody knows that Barack Obama was the president that has deported um, the highest number of people. And even then, people didn't re realize that we were not only uh, deporting criminals, and not only deporting uh, people who might perform terrorist attacks, but people with families, and many, many cases, people who have come to the U.S. looking not for a better life, just to save their lives. Um, I started uh, working on this book five years ago, and uh, I finished the book. And when I finished the book, Donald Trump won. <laughs> so uh, my editor and I had to go back a little and say, okay, now we have to move to something uh, because on day one, we start talking about changing our asylum policies, changing the way we treat the rest of the world, including the Muslim ban. And that's the reason why I start with the Muslim ban, because this is the first time, as you just mentioned, where we uh, reacted uh, in in massive numbers towards a specific anti-immigrant policy. And, and that has given us a chance in the past 18 months to see ourselves in the mirror. But this is only uh, the result of a system uh, and a series of policies that have been applied for a very long time and that have uh, created a filter, a, screen, a screening system to see who do we want here in the country and who we really don't want here. How much did the U.S. become anti-immigrant? How much, how much did it become increasingly racist in reaction to 9-11? Is 9-11 the reason that, at least for a while, it seems, the United States tolerated this kind of anti-immigration stance? Uh, I think um, this is an important turning point for us for, as a country because 9-11 um, allowed us to, to legally uh, change certain things that in other situations maybe it would have been hard, uh, included, for example, uh, passing a DREAM Act. If you, if you remember the first version of the DREAM Act, to give a regular immigration status to, chill, to, to youth who came 
as children to the country was uh, first presented in Congress in August 2001. And then we had 9-11 the same year. And the DREAM Act had all the possibilities to be approved. And um, 18 years have passed, 17 years have passed, and we have nothing. So those are the, the things that uh, changed because we found an excuse or we found a reason to, to not do the right thing in certain cases. And it's important, uh, 9-11, because also I, I follow very much the, the tracking that the authorities do from hate groups because that's a good thermometer uh, on what happens in the country. As I say, maybe the groups are not uh, growing in number, but they are in activity. And especially after 9-11 and then after um, Barack Obama taking office, those are two moments where both activity and the number of hate groups uh, start growing again in the U.S. So, yes, certainly uh, that, that's, that's an important moment, and we can um, look back at it. More about, um, yes, we, we have anti-immigration groups or an anti-immigration mind in certain areas, but now we are seeing a racist anti-immigration because we are not against all immigrants. We are against certain immigrants or certain kind of immigration, and I do not mean illegal immigration, which uh, very often is what uh, many people would tell you. Oh, no, 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 I'm not against immigration, just illegal immigration. Well, uh, we have to review what our policies are about asylum and refuge, and that's the purpose of this book. And there we are going to see that more than immigrants or not immigrants, what we don't want here is certain kind of people, and those have been drawn on political criteria instead of human rights criteria. Of course, Muslim ban is a perfect example, and I'm pretty sure that um, everyone can see, you can agree or not, but everyone can see that this has a racist component, not only a security component. But we can uh, go back 20 or 30 years and we, will, and we will find the same thing. If you remember during the 60s and the 70s, there were dictatorships uh, growing up both in Cuba and in Haiti. And in the same period of time, we had the same situation for both countries. People wanted to flee the country, many of them using boats to come to the U.S. Uh, by that time, the Cuban regime was uh, one of the main enemies of the uh, U.S. Uh, government. And by that time, uh, the, the regime in Haiti with uh, Mr. Duvalier, who was a dictator as well, was uh, in good terms with the U.S. Both were dictatorships. Both had people fleeing the country and looking to go to another place. But one of them had economical and political ties with us. The other one, no. So what we did is start opening our arms and our country to people fleeing uh, Cuba fleeing that regime, the regime that we did not approve, and we start making political statements when we receive those people. Uh, when you open your country, your arms to people, 
and receive them as asylum seekers or refugees, you are uh, acknowledging that they are coming from a country that is not a democracy. Um, we did not that with people from Haiti because it was a convenient relationship for the U.S. government. So people coming sometimes in the same boat would be rejected and deported if they were coming from Haiti, and we will, they will be received uh, if they were coming from Cuba. So uh, what I do in the book is uh, I explore um, how during the last decade we have built this criteria according to what the political moment is telling our government it's convenient or not for our own interests. Uh, in the case of asylum, and I'm um, somehow glad that we can talk about this book precisely in this moment when we are seeing this thing in the border, that criteria has been applied for at least 20 years. Uh, and this has as a result that we have um, thousands of people coming from Honduras, from El Salvador, from Guatemala, fleeing from really violent situations. Uh, we have these children coming. And when we say children, uh, I, I just want to be precise in this. Right now, we are seeing little children coming with their parents, and we have all seen these scenes uh, that are heartbreaking. But during the past years, when we say children, we're talking more about teenagers, men and women, many of them uh, trying by themselves, coming here as a comp unaccompanied uh, minors. And the reason why they are fleeing is because uh, gangs and elective groups are trying to recruit them. So they see the U.S. as the place to not be engaged in a gang and to not be, not be raped or abused on, or other things by a gang. So they look for the U.S., they start the journey, they come here, they knock on our, our doors, and... Um, the recent narrative says that they're not welcome because they might be gang members, <laughs> exactly the thing that they are trying to escape from. But also, once they start a process, if for some reason an immigration agent or a judge considers that they have what we call a credible fear, which is you present your reasons and they, uh, they are strong enough to consider your case, once we start that, the percentage of uh, possibility of approval that they have coming from those countries is around 10% or less, which means that the other 90% gets rejected. And either they get deported or they stay in the country with no documents. So sometimes we think that we are uh, receiving people, but we don't know what happens to them. And what happens is that Legally, when their process is finished, uh, they do not get uh, a legal status here, but also they do not get human status here, which is the problem. People who are looking to uh, save their lives and think that America is the place where they are going to uh, find uh, peace and a, and a nice place to start living uh, um, their lives, is the place where humanity for them is denied because they are suspects 
in suspects of being gang members or other things. People with the same amount of threat on their lives coming right now, for example, from Venezuela have 75% of possibilities to be accepted as asylum seeker in the U.S. If they present the same situation, the same evidence, because, as you know, Venezuela is a regime that is no friends with the U.S. government. That's the way uh, we work right now. You write that for decades, the United States has promoted itself to the rest of the world as a, excuse me, as a democratic country with a policy of open arms and affirming diversity, which has very little to do with how the nation actually shapes its policies around immigration, refuge and asylum. Does does lying to ourselves lead the U.S., especially people on the right, to believe we are far more welcoming than the U.S. really is. Does telling the world and ourselves that the U.S. is a democratic country with a policy of open arms and affirming diversity, when it is not, lead to the more harsh immigration policy of the Trump administration? Does it exaggerate how welcoming we are? And therefore, it leads to a backlash. Yes, and I think not only uh, exaggerates how welcoming we are, but also uh, who are we receiving and what these people are doing. And I think that's important because the the first element that you will find when you speak with a person uh, from the right, a conservative person who supports this kind of um, of policies, they will tell you things. And I, I'm pretty sure that everyone has here it is. Uh, they, they steal our jobs. They are uh, here and take uh, social benefits that we pay with our taxes. They do not pay taxes. They are, uh, well, the most recent, obviously, is they are gang members or uh, drug traffickers. They, um, the, the, this narrative implies that the people who are coming to the country is abusing the system, is abusing the country, that they're taking something from us that they shouldn't, and that we are doing nothing, that we have been robbed, and uh, that we have to recover what we have, and we now don't because of these people. Uh, I think the problem there is that we have not acknowledged and starting by the government and by politicians and by the Congress itself, we do not recognize enough the need that we have for uh, immigrants in this country and how have we used these immigrants to uh, create a system that is unfair but benefits everyone. And when I say everyone, I include these immigrants because when you have someone who can uh, mow your yard serve your food, clean your hotels um, in a cheap way. You don't have to spend much. You don't have much responsibilities. People who are not going to complain to you if they don't have documents, even less. But still in this situation, these people have a better situation than the one that they have in their countries. So this system, this apparatus was worth perfectly for everyone. We don't want to see that we are using people in our benefit, and these people is allowing to be used because they are better here in that situation than the way we were li- they were living in their countries. And that's the part that we have to realize 
And I think at this moment, with the things in the border happening, we might start to take a look at it. What has to be happening in a country that a woman or a man take their child, four or five years old, and decides to cross one border from El Salvador to Guatemala, and they, they walk and walk and walk and cross a second border, and they cross Mexico, and we know what is the situation for immigrants crossing Mexico. And they take weeks, they uh, take risks, many of them don't make it to the border, but once they make it to the border, we arrest them, now we separate them, and yet it's worth it. What has to be happening in El Salvador? So these people are still coming and are still uh, taking the risk to go through all of this because whatever they find here is going to be better than what they have now. And I know this um, maybe will sound harsh. I don't want to sound cynical, but we have seen the images, of course, not those images of uh, kids in, in cages. That's, that's irrational. But also that's a situation that happened uh, during the time that they're in the ICE and immigration premises, which is normally not more than 72 hours. And after that, they are moved to shelters. And some of, the, of these shelters we have seen, uh, they have several beds together. They have meals. They're not with their parents. They have certain activities. And someone just described that as a um, summer camp. Okay, that's not the ideal situation for a child by far. But yet, in that situation, they are way better than in their country. And if we start realizing that, we can understand what have we done during the last years. We have been abusing that. We have been abusing them and their um, disadvantage when they come to this country, knowing that whatever thing we offer to them is going to be better. Why and that doesn't make us a democracy. Why then do we not see the connection between U.S. foreign policy in places like Honduras, in places like Mexico? Why do we not see the connection between U.S. foreign policy and the reason people are trying to get into the United States? I think because we, we have our own history, but we tell our story in a way that makes us look uh, like like this democratic beacon of light country. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that any person who starts really reading about the U.S. history and the history of the U.S. intervention in many countries, uh, no one can keep saying, "Well, we're doing the right thing on this." Or, well, we didn't have. Uh, um, something to do with what's happening there. The, that phrase that has been repeated several times in, in, in certain situations, one of them, and an audience that uh, Jose Vargas, one um, undocumented uh, immigrant activist said in a Congress, we are here because you were there. Uh, when you realize that the U.S. has had these intervention policies in our country, uh, in South America, in Central America specifically, but also in Asia. And now we have people coming from those countries. It's pretty easy to understand that 
that's the reason. Immigrants are here trying to save their lives or looking for a better life because the U.S. was there trying to do politics. So um, you write how uh, the other has evolved as necessary to successive administrations. There was the undesirable Asian, Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos in the second half of the 19th century, followed by Jews and Italians at the beginning of the 20th century, communists for several decades, Mexicans for much of the same century, Central Americans for the last 20 years, and Muslims filling the role of the other for the first decades of the 21st century. So is it inevitable that over time, Mexicans and Central Americans, like Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, Jews and Italians, and the Irish and Germans long before them, is it inevitable that Mexicans and Central Americans will no longer be seen as the other and they will be replaced by yet a new other? Uh, That's a a good question. And some some, uh, young journalists, tend to ask that to me. Uh, that would be the, quote, ideal quote, thing. Uh, if we see how uh, during the past century or two centuries, things have moved in the country. But we have a difference here that some of these migrations from other countries, the Irish, the Japanese, uh, the Jews, came to the country uh, on a certain period of time and after that, that migration finished. Those groups ended up being here, and they, uh, with after a few years, they got a, um, a more peaceful, regular way to be here. What is happening with Mexico, and especially now with Central America, is that that immigration is not ending because the situation in those countries is not ending either. So we started having people from uh, from South America and Central America, especially Central America, in the 80s when we had the, the civil wars there because the U.S. Uh, was there. And, uh, well, they, they came here. After a few years, they got uh, what is known as TPS, which is uh, Temporary Protection, something similar to DACA that uh, people from El Salvador and from Honduras have had during um, more than a decade. Uh, but the, the situation in those countries have not improved at all. So if that cycle of migration doesn't finish at some point, it's hard. To me, it's going to be hard that we can have this normalization of these groups here, because now we uh, we can talk and we know Mexicans or Salvadorians that have been in the country for 30 years, but we also know Mexican and Salvadorians who arrived yesterday. So this is still, after 30 years, an ongoing process. Uh, to me, uh, as I see it, I think uh, the Trump administration was determined to make uh, Muslim and certain um, uh, Eastern countries, the new other. But uh, the fact that uh, the Muslim ban created all these response and all this noise, um, well, it, 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 they didn't get this chance. And they needed to present something as a result before the midterm election. And I think that's why uh, right now we are seeing these very, very hard policies 
on people coming from uh, from the south, from the from the southern border. I think that if the Muslim ban would have no resistance inside the country, maybe that would be our other right now in the political narrative towards the midterm election. You write the so-called deportation machine has already been up and running for at least a decade, beginning with the George W. Bush administration in 2001 in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and picking up steam during Barack Obama's time in office. Almost three million people were deported in the eight years of Obama's presidency, a number that Trump has provided as a possible goal for his administration. Will Trump deport as many people as Obama deported? And if he does, will that be enough for conservatives? That is, would Trump being as tough on immigrants and deportation as Obama was be enough for Trump supporters? I think at this point, just uh, meeting that that number, the number that Obama had, could be enough because clearly he can't (laughs) so far. And this is the reason. Uh, when we speak about this deportation machine, uh, we are talking about resources to perform this deportation activity, which implies having agents in the border, have detention centers, have uh, the people who are involved in the legal process, including judges. And uh, in the case of people who are coming from Mexico, you you can just go to the border, put them in the other side, and that's it. But when you are talking about people from El Salvador or any other country that uh, doesn't share a border with us, you have to talk also about logistics. You cannot deport a person from El Salvador to Mexico. You have to make arrangements to get a flight, go into El Salvador, talk to the authorities there so they can receive them. The process is very long. And also, in many cases, we are still respecting some of uh, some parts of the process that protect some rights for these people. Not right now, <laughs> but in the past, um, which makes the process very long and very expensive. Uh, when Barack Obama deported almost three million people, he was using the the machine resources uh, fully, completely. If we need to increase, or if we want to increase the number of people who we are deporting, we have to increase resources for that machine. And that's what um, Donald Trump have, have tried to do through Congress. That's the reason why uh, he started bargaining with DACA. He wanted more agents in the border. He wanted more money uh, for ICE. And he recently he said that he wants more judges. I don't know if you're familiar with this uh, with this figure, but to me it's uh, it's unbelievable that we have been working uh, this way. The the judicial system for immigration, the number of courts, immigration courts, immigration judges that we have now in the U.S. is 350, 350 immigration judges in all the U.S. And we had a backlog, a backlog of more than 600,000, I'm going to repeat the figure, 600,000 cases waiting in the line. When they tell you getting the line, that's the line that they're talking about. Getting that line of 600,000 people that are waiting to get 
their immigration case solved, for which we have uh, 350 judges. So there's no way we can deport more people if we uh, want to follow the process. We would need a lot more of resources, and the Congress has denied that, uh, that money for that purpose. And I don't think they will do it in the near future. Let's see what happens in the midterms. But even having now the support of the Congress, that has not happened. So that's why I think it's very hard to reach that number, that we are going to reach just that number and not much more. And also, that's the reason why we are having more detention. We are not deporting people, but we are detaining people. If you see this, uh, the numbers, statistics of ICE, in the first year of President Trump, he deported around uh, 200,000 people, which is uh, half of what Obama deported in his highest year. But he detained more people than um, those who were detained under Obama in average in his administration. So what he is doing is arrest people, uh, create rates in, in certain places, workplaces, certain communities, and having these people detained for a certain time, I don't know how long, sometimes it might be weeks, sometimes it might be months, depending on the place and the people and the process. But here we have to acknowledge two things. First of all, that detaining people He's making a statement, a statement that he cannot do right now, increasing deportations because because he doesn't have the resources, but he does have these detention centers. And second, that the, the, the immigrant detention center system in the U.S. Um, works under the control of two private companies, CCA, uh, now the name of them is Core Civic, they changed their name, CoreCivic and GEO. Those are uh, companies who manage the immigrant detention centers paid with our uh, tax dollars. And um, those are private companies that have been donors of the Republican Party and the Donald Trump campaign. So, uh, again, we are using economic and political criteria to apply rules that have been uh, designed in the case of asylum or refuge to be human rights and social justice uh, processes. That's what we are doing right now. And you also point towards, in Mexico, the narco-trafficking war, the drug war that's taking place there, with the support of the U.S., the funding of the U.S., the prompting of the U.S., but, you know, that's not something that we ever see in the media, that one of the reasons that is we're seeing the immigration issue that we are having at the U.S.-Mexico border right now is because of that drug war. Why do you think the media hasn't pointed toward the reason that we are having this immigration issue is the drug war that the U.S. supports? Because the drugs end up in uh, our tables in the U.S. I mean, you can follow and you can track the activity of those drug cartels through Mexico. And in the United States, many people are familiar with the name of these cartels, the Sinaloa cartel, the Chapo, the Gulf cartel. They, they even have TV series and movies about it. 
but no one says what happens. I mean, all of this activity, the purpose of it is to get those drugs to the U.S. We see that in the, in the movies and in the series. But no one wonders, oh, what happened after those drugs cross the border? Who makes the magic? So from Texas, suddenly uh, this bag appears in a party in New York. How does it work? We never speak, we never question, we never even talk about what are the cartels working in the U.S. and how are we getting our weed coming from outside the country? How are we getting cocaine? How are we getting all of these substances that are uh, creating a market because we consume them? They are the producers, but we are consuming here in the U.S., and that's very uncomfortable to, to admit, you know. Okay, there are people who are dying. Uh, there are people who are suffering because of this, so we can have our fix this Saturday. We, again, don't like to see ourselves in the mirror, and to me, it's time already to do it because it's been almost uh, 15 years for Mexico, especially uh, dealing with this. A hundred thousand people have died because of this, and we in the U.S. do not see ourselves as responsible, even when the the product comes here, and that's the last step of the process. I've just got a couple of questions left for you, Eileen. Uh, last week, we were talking to our correspondent that we have in Mexico City, Laura Carlson, who is director of the Americas Program for the Center for International Policy in Mexico City. And uh, Laura writes how Mexico adopted the neoliberal model, whole hog in the late 1980s, an export-oriented economy, transnational corporate production, unregulated financial mobility, without labor mobility, militarization, environmental exploitation and destruction, state support for foreign investors, while withdrawing from national development and rock-bottom wages. So I want to ask you the same question I asked Laura last week. Unregulated financial mobility without labor mobility. Is that what we see in conflict at the border right now? Can financial mobility not happen without labor mobility? And when it does, it leads to the current set of problems that we are facing at the U.S.-Mexico border. Is this because money can move across borders with no problem, but labor is not allowed? Absolutely. That is the reason. And that's why many people in Mexico uh, is pushing for a renegotiation of the of the NAFTA because it's an agreement that was supposed to benefit all parts. And for Mexico, that have only meant that uh, we are all that you just described. Uh, we are getting rid of certain resources. Um, people have to, but you know, the whole the whole thing was designed thinking of the role of Mexico in this uh, in this agreement to um, contribute with workers. Mexico would be the workforce on this. The workforce in Mexico. I mean, uh, um, the U.S. companies, uh, because of the agreement, can invest in Mexico and send their uh, factories or their call centers. We are familiar with that. Or uh, any other uh, companies um, to be to, to establish in Mexico. And they were granted that they were going to have workers uh, who they can pay lower so they can have uh, their companies producing more and better. The thing is that 
uh, this has not worked very much because, first of all, not all people who used to work, for example, in the field, uh, has the training or the education to go to work in a factory or in a company or in a call center. And second, if you you have to understand what the the history of the Mesoamerican countries, like Mexico, like Central American countries, we are coming from a uh, 500 years or more tradition of um, having a, a strong relation with our land, which is more than the soil that you're walking on. It's what what you belong to and what belongs to you. So for many people, especially in southern Mexico, when they were not allowed to keep working in the fields because there were not more investment for them, because that was not part of the agreement, what they have done is just come to the U.S. and keep working on what they know uh, how to do. So you can go to the fields here in California and you can see them uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, Mexican hands picking up the food that are getting to uh, the American people's tables. We, uh, and all of them, many, many of them came here with no documents. So this didn't work the, the way they, they said it was going to work, and we have not made the adjustment. Everyone knows. I, I really think that at this point, everyone knows that, especially in the field, uh, we really need people coming from outside the country. Otherwise, this doesn't work. We have seen that in places like Alabama, when the anti-immigrant um, uh, laws start applying there. Many producers complained because their workers were uh, scared and they just moved to, to another state. We really need those hands. We really need those workers. And we really need to start seeing them as, as they are, people who are coming here to work and to give something to the United States, to be part of this production machine that we have created using them. Can, can we address the issues that we have right now with immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border? Can we do that without addressing the indifference. You point out how the United States has already built a wall between the U.S. and Mexico, and it's a, it's a, a, a wall that is inside of all of us, which is the indifference to the rest of the world. Can we fix the immigration problem without addressing the U.S. indifference to the rest of the world, without addressing how American culture seemingly doesn't care about anything that happens outside of its borders? No, of course. We can't, but let me tell you, and every time I go to speak about this to universities or other places, they tell me that I'm too optimistic to be a, a journalist, but I am. <laughs> uh, let, let me tell you. Uh, of course, we cannot do that if we do not acknowledge what have we done in the last years. And uh, we have to start by sharing information, because as you just mentioned before, the media has been uh, covering this immigration issue just periodically and when there's something that is very um, newsworthy. When you have breaking news like these mothers and children being separated in the border, 
all the media runs there and all the media wants to talk to them and they become the subject for a week or a month, maybe a little bit longer, but not much more than that. And you don't see those same media after the situation passes or passes its peak moment, uh, trying to understand why did we get that. We see what happens, but we refuse to understand why is this happening, especially when we speak about immigration. My experience, I've been covering the subject for 15 years here in the United States, and my experience is that when in the media we speak about immigration, it's always because immigration equals problem. It's trouble. Uh, We even have this uh, phrase saying we have to fix the immigration problem. We are starting uh, by a point where we uh, say that this is a problem and not a human phenomenon. Uh, Many of the things that we are seeing now in mainstream media and many young reporters who are jumping on the beat on the subject, and I hope they stay there for a long time, uh, are approaching to the immigration subject for the first time. So they are... um, in, in a way, fascinated by why they are uh, finding, oh, there are shelters for children. Oh, there are companies who are having these people in detention, even if they are just asking for asylum and have not committed a crime. It's very good that they are realizing that this is happening because it has happened for a long time and they never saw it. So this is a good moment. Let's make the best of it. And let's embrace it and let's ask our media, ask other people to keep talking about it. Even if we don't have the crying baby in the media in the next month, we still have a problem. We still have a system that works that way. And we still have people who are detained because they're coming to the U.S. looking to save their lives. Uh, to me, there's, there's something that I think we can... Um, It can be a good thing after all. We had Donald Trump taking office, taking oath on um, January 20th, 2017. And the very next day, we had the largest protest that we have seen in the U.S. history. That's a good thing. Because we have this part that is so, um, so, so pragmatic and so cynical in our politics. But we have seen that when this is so radically, openly cynical and pragmatic, certain uh, parts of the population react. And we have seen the reaction. We saw it there with, uh, with Women's March, which was an intersectional movement that I hope stays for a very long time. And we saw it with the Muslim ban, with people going to the airports, and we are seeing it now with people going to the airports to wait for the people who are coming um, out from this process of family separation. So we are reacting right now. If we can keep seeing the thing, and especially from media, if we can keep showing the thing and trying to understand, to better explain the American people, how have we worked in the past decades, I think we have a good start. But yes, definitely, if we do not understand what have we done in the past, we are not going to be able to fix it. And we have a midterm election in November. Talking to our uh, Congress members or the candidates about this could be a very good beginning at this moment. 
One last question, one final question for you, Eileen. We have been speaking with journalist Eileen Truex. She wrote the new book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. You can follow her on Twitter at Eileen Truex, and you can find out more about Eileen at EileenTruex.com. For every one of our guests, we our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How far will the newly elected president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, go to fixing the problems within Mexico that you point out drive immigrants to want to leave Mexico? Do you think that AMLO will uh, maybe end the drug war? Do you think he'll do anything that will make the situation far better after his term in office? I think he will do something. I think he has very good intentions. But just like it happens with immigration here, what is happening in Mexico now is the result of many, many years of several uh, things happening uh, at the same time. And it's going to be very hard for him because it, it doesn't only depend on the Mexican government or on the president. He has the Congress in his favor. I mean, he, he won and he has the power to do many things because he has a favorable Congress. But he also, in order to take out uh, the PRI and the system that has been working in Mexico for so many decades, he has to create these alliances with other groups. And to me, the challenge for him will be that to to make agreement, internal agreements with the groups that now are involved in the government to start looking for a, a path to get um, a more regular way to to have a relation with the United States and not this relation that we have had in the past decades that is uh, completely submitting to uh, what the U.S. wants. Uh, I think uh, López Obrador wants a more respectful um, one-on-one relationship with the U.S., but the economical situation is not the idea right now. So it's going to be hard. Uh, This is the question from hell that the audience is going to hate because I'm not giving you a straight response. But it's too late. I mean, it's too soon to say. What I know is that there's a chance and there's a good intention. One of the main um, talking points for López Obrador during these years that he has been doing campaign, as you know, this is the third time that he tries to be a president. So basically, he has been on campaign for 12 years. And one of his main talking points is that we have to ask for a respectful relationship with the U.S. He has to deliver there because many people voted for him considering that part. So uh, I would expect him trying to do it, to do it and uh, working towards that. I'm not sure if he will achieve it. Eileen, I really appreciate you being on the show. That is journalist Eileen Truax, who wrote the new book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you so much for having me. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. The Electronic Freedom Foundation is a front. It's a scam. It's nothing more than a shill for the big tech companies that fund them. Companies like 
Google, Facebook. And that's all it has ever been. We'll get the ugly history of a group that actually has done some good work, but some really bad work, too, when we have the return of investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who wrote the Baffler article, All Effed Up, as in Electronic Freedom Foundation, Silicon Valley's AstroTurf Privacy Shakedown. You might remember uh, that Yasha has been on the show in the past, including this past February when we, he was on to speak about his book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. If you become a regular Patreon supporter, not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell subvertising stickers, but you'll also get some additional perks, including every week getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 20-plus years of on-air con- uh, conversation selected by me with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview for our Patreon supporters. In other words, you get a whole additional podcast of This Is Hell. <clears throat> on this week's Patreon wow. On this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. This week we posted the podcast on the fourth of July, so Alex suggested an Independence Day themed interview from our archives, and I immediately picked our first on air conversation with historian Ray Raphael from October thirteenth, two thousand and one, right after his book People's History of the American Revolution had been published. I also talk about how uh, I was supposed to play a cross-dressing murderer in a movie, but instead I booked Noam Chomsky on the show. Uh, So yeah, if you want to hear that great conversation on the Ray Raphael end, not my part, uh, People's History of the American Revolution to find out how the American Revolution was originally a people's revolution, a collective uprising that was leaderless and in many ways resembled Occupy Wall Street and the many movements that have arisen since Spain's Indignados 15M movement in 2011. But the only way you can hear that interview is by signing up as a Patreon patron by going to patreon.com slash this is hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. We want to thank the people who signed up this week as new Patreon patrons. Dan H., GGW, Jesse F., and Miriam W. And you can join them and another 252 listeners in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we really want a lot of you to sign up soon because this building of this studio is costing a lot of money, more than we actually were hoping for or... (laughs) we're planning on so sign up as a supporter of this is hell on patreon now let's see if you can if we can go from 256 patrons to 300 by the time of our third annual this is hell 20th anniversary party and listener appreciation show and art show also featuring live music that's saturday july 21st at carrie's lounge only two weeks away and second story studios 2251 west devon beginning at 3 p.m and going till whenever on next week's patreon podcast we will give you the latest chapter in our ongoing monthly series and oral history of the Iraq War as it happened here on This Is Hell. And that interview will be uh, one that we did back in 2005 with U.S. Army Captain James Yee. James was a Muslim chaplain stationed at the notorious Gitmo Guantanamo Detention Facility for terror suspects. John had been wrongfully charged with espionage, so of course we got him on This Is Hell as, first as, we, as fast as we could. So uh, if you want to hear that interview... The only way you're going to hear it is by signing up for Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what's the most ethical way to recirculate this counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? What's the most ethical way to recirculate the counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? All replies right on air right now 
Our favorite wins, $5. Again, the question from hell is, what's the most ethical way to recirculate the counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen, uh, well, right now to see if you have won. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from Al. All right. What is the most ethical way to recirculate this $5 bill that I got from buying a euro, actually, uh, right before I had uh, dinner at Carrie's Lounge? Jason L. says, donate to the, NR- to the NRA. Ronaldo M. says, sell it to me for five cents. <laughs> Pete V says, buy lottery tickets. <laughs> Jamie M says, convert it to Canadian dollars, wait for the U.S. economy to tank, then take your investment and combat homelessness. <laughs> Justin H says, pay taxes. <laughs> John K says, step one, roll it into a tube shape. Step two, sniff Coke. Step three, repeat step two until you're broke or your heart explodes. <laughs> What's the most ethical way for me to recirculate this counterfeit $5 bill I got? Colin J says, anonymously mail it to the Secret Service as a donation to the Colombian Prostitute Scandal Legal Defense Fund. <laughs> Marie K says, make people pay you a dollar to see it in person, make it a slideshow attraction, and uh, make sideshow attraction, and make more than five dollars in the end. Yeah, I like that. Uh, would you pay one dollar chunk to see this five dollar counterfeit bill I have? Uh, no. Yeah, well. Uh, Miles A says donated to the Scott Pruitt Defense Fund. Mark S says Sunday morning collection basket at religious establishment of your choice. That is exactly right. Eric A says pass it around through the church communities. <laughs> Brian S says put it in your bit put it in your local Bitcoin repository. Receive point oh 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 four five eight bitcoins. Log onto the dark web and start a ham-fisted cryptocurrency pyramid scheme in which participants must. Match your contribution to a shared counterfeit medical cannabis card that works only for one fictitious dispensary, which <laughs> at the moment people discover it's fake. You'll say Rotten Jeff Sessions passed legislation to cut funding for and now requires further donations to get started so everyone can use their credit card. And then you divert all the donations to the This Is Hell Advancement <laughs> Fund, which I mean, it's simple, really, and the ends justify the means because all these donors are probably all bored cyber cops anyway, right? <laughs> wow, Brian. Yeah, that was pretty good. Benjamin C. says, tithe it. (laughs) Greg M. says, if there are any toll road booths that still accept cash, road trip. Jacob P. says, give it to Lloyd Blankfein. (laughs) Jason F. says, buy Chuck a counterfeit beer. (laughs) Sebastian M. M. says, mega church donation. Nathaniel T. says, NPR. (laughs) Eric T. says, donate it to the RNC. Curly B. says, well, don't give it to your local pot guy or girl. You think your $20 sack's got sticks and seeds in it now? Just wait. <laughs> Eric D. says, Rahm Emanuel campaign contribution. <laughs> What's the most ethical way for me to recirculate this $5 counterfeit bill I got? Andrew P. says, absolutely must be donated to any politician running for election this fall. MTB says, paste it in the, lo- in the building of your favorite charity. Stencil a five-year-old attached to it. Start a rumor that it's a Banksy. <laughs> Howard F. says, donate it to Rahm Emanuel's re-election campaign. <laughs> Chris L says, "Find a kid running a lemonade stand and say, "Hey, young lady, I like it. Your intrapre- I like your entrepreneurial spirit. Here's a few bucks to keep you going as you take the picture." Who now, said that? Uh, that was Chris L. They're never too young to learn the lessons of capitalism. <laughs> Warren L says, "Donate to the RNC." Tony B says, "Rounders g-string." <laughs> Joanne C says, "Just spend it. There are no ethics about it." Which is maybe the smartest answer of all. <laughs> yes, it is. Angela M says, send it to Trump as a contribution to the re-election campaign he's already running. Lawrence C says, wait till someone's got that line of coke all set up and she's patting her bikini pockets. Wow. Mark F says, buy something for $10 and explain that the counterfeit bill is a metaphor for the profit appropriated by the capitalist class. Mm-hmm. 
Joshua uh, AL says, buy counterfeit nickels. <laughs> and then he says, like 600 of them. <laughs> Our own Jeffy D says, make sure, put it on the counter, and if it fits, it's counterfeit. What? I'm banning him from saying wow. that. Uh, wow. Dennis H says, there is no ethical recirculation under capitalism. <laughs> Sean M says, I always spend them at Carrie's. Uh, I had the wrong bartender for that night because that was the one who f- that was the person who figured it out. Uh, Andrew I says at the only place where it won't end up hurting the independent proprietor, the DMV, of course. Oliver J says, use it as startup capital for your own counterfeiting business. <laughs> What's the most ethical way for me to recirculate this counterfeit bill? Austin H says, give it to Wells Fargo. They're pretty good at figuring out what to do with that counterfeit stuff. Fabio L says, donate to a corporate Democrat incumbent who's running against their progressive challenger, then call the FBI on them. <laughs> Linda K says, spend it at Walmart. Andrew T says, give it to the parents of soldiers killed in the Korean War. Oh, man. Mark A.S. says, does it fit in an automatic lottery ticket kiosk? Scams for the scammers. Ladio says, give it to a fake bum. Mark R. says, laminate it. Put a Baudrillard quote on it, turn it into a This Is Hell subvertising bookmark, and sell it for $10. <laughs> Profit. Jim P. says, try to buy some weed from the brother of the guy who made the bill. <laughs> and then a couple of responses via Twitter. Sorry, I'm using Internet Explorer right now. Have you ever used Internet Explorer? I, I try not it to. Is, uh, it is a surreal experience. Yeah. Uh, Eatfarts69 says, hey, man, you got five bucks I can borrow? <laughs> Rock Taster says, convert it to some... Con, uh, cover it with some kind of adhesive that is tenacious and absolutely putrid and stick it on the stone floor in the Capitol. And finally, uh, Chris D says, uncivilly stuff it into Steve Manukin's wife's pie hole. <sighs> My response to the question from hell, what's the most ethical way to recirculate the counterfeit $5 bill that Alex got? Well, give it to the Catholic Church. The church is great at laundering the money nobody else can use. So that makes this week's winner. First of all, I want to, just want to say real quick, I just want to say real quick that uh, as far as putting it in a lottery machine, I have never seen a lottery machine not take any kind of money. You can put a torn $5 bill in there, things that are missing corners. Lottery machines always take money. The same uh, dollar bill you try to put in a, a Coke machine, that will never work. But in a lottery machine, absolutely no problem. So maybe that might be the best answer. But I'm going to go with Chris L.'s response about laundering it through a kid's lemonade stand. So Chris L., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. And this week's prize, $5. This is how office hours happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from the This Is Hell offices, and hopefully soon, our studio as well. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening. Hang out, chat me up. I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by. That is, if I remember. And I have been remembering lately, so that's kind of a good thing. I'll also give you some subvertising stickers. Come on in, say hello, watch me drink, get a free book, and some This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words, This Is Hell. And again, thanks to David G. for doing that and then posting it on Instagram. This is Hell Office Hours, Wednesdays, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I want to thank the people who did drop by this past week. I forgot to write all their names down again, so let's see if I can remember them. Let's see, there was producers Alex, Theron, Leo, Richard were there. I remember watching Richard and another Richard and Lucy playing a weird bootleg old-school Tetris game. I talked to Nate for a while, I think. Jason and Rosario were in town for the Socialism 2018 conference, so they dropped by. 
Uh, Laura and Jen were there, uh, and George and Dave. And my apologies if there's anyone I am forgetting. And you can talk me up and get free books and stickers, hopefully, at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And that's where in just two weeks on Saturday, July 21st, for where we will be holding our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, which will also feature live music. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and lasting until whenever. I know I'll be there until at least 11. I might make it to midnight, but I will have done a four-hour live radio show without any commercial breaks earlier that day, so who knows how long I'll last. That's the third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and lasting until whenever. For me, I'm putting the over-under at right around midnight. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the Electronic Freedom Foundation is a corporate front for Google and Facebook. During a singular moment of truth, Jeff gets tangled in space and time, which sounds pretty cool. All that stuff, plus, might get to some rotten history in a little bit, and a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell, live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. This is Hell. The Electronic Freedom Foundation is a front, the lobbying arm of Google and Facebook, and that's what it was always intended to be, a corporate lobbying group for the tech industry. So why has it taken us this long to figure it out? Here to tell us the all the hows and whys of the EFF investigative journalist, Yasha Levin, wrote the Baffler article, All Effed Up, Silicon Valley's AstroTurf Privacy Shakedown. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Yasha. Hey, what's up? Uh, glad to be here. Yasha was an editor at the Moscow-based newspaper, The Exile. Uh, this is Yasha's fourth appearance on This Is Hell and his second this year. You may remember Yasha being on most recently back in February when we spoke with him about his book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. You can find out more about that uh, uh, book by going to surveillancevalley.com and find out more about Yasha at yasha11.com. So you see this, you start this article by writing about stumbling on what you believed was a protest in front of the Apple store on 5th in New York City. But on closer inspection, you realize that this wasn't a protest against Apple, but a rally of ardent supporters praising the company's product line. One of the participants held up a large red poster featuring a giant iPhone and a bold slogan, secure phones save lives. How do they see iPhones saving lives when you clearly do not? Well, to be honest, I'm not actually sure how iPhones save lives. I mean, I, I think um, it's not clear. I could never get a straight answer from that. But uh, what that protest was, uh, a protest in support of Apple, was uh, in support of Apple in its uh, sort of public relations fight with the FBI. Uh, because if your listeners will remember, 2015, there was a you know, horrific uh, crime that happened in San Bernardino in California, um, where a couple radicalized uh, and sort of fueled by the uh, dreams of, of a global jihad, uh, attacked a, a nonprofit um, in San Bernardino and, and killed a lot of people. Um, and they were killed themselves in a shootout with the police. And um, the FBI wanted uh, a- Apple to unlock um, 
one of the suspects um, iPhones because they thought that maybe this was not just a, uh, a singular attack. Maybe it was part of an organized attack. Maybe there were going to be other attacks uh, that were in the works. And if so, you know, the FBI wanted to know and to potentially stop them, right? And so Apple refused on principle to, to unlock um, the phone and turned this conflict into a big public relations spectacle where uh, Apple positioned itself as defender of the people uh, against a big brother surveillance state represented by the FBI. And um, there was a, and, and so the people who were at that Apple store in Manhattan, in front of that Apple store in Manhattan, they were there to lend their support um, to Apple. And, 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 and root for Apple against the FBI. And so I'm not sure what it is that they meant by iPhone, secure iPhones, save lives. But in this case, there were, Apple was trying to actually you know, hinder a, a criminal investigation into, into, into a terrorist attack uh, by unlocking, by refusing to unlock this iPhone. So. Well, how, uh, how concerned is Apple over the surveillance of their iPhone users? I mean, uh, publicly, they're uh, very concerned. Uh, privately, I don't think they're very concerned at all. You have to remember that uh, Apple, as, as well as just about every other big tech company, including um, Google and Facebook, uh, Yahoo, uh, Microsoft, are part of the NSA's prison program, which uh, provides a data tap to the NSA and to the CIA, uh, allowing uh, these intelligence agencies to grab, to grab data on any user uh, they want. Uh, Apple also does business in China and has um, and has um, um, uh, has moved a- a- actually all of its data uh, warehouses that house um, uh, data for Chinese its Chinese user base to China so that the Chinese government can have access to it. That was a condition of it doing business in China essentially. So it doesn't really care about people's privacy, not really. Uh, it doesn't want to promote this idea that it does, and it wants to promote itself as different than Google, right? Because Google and its Android phone, um, they scan everything that happens on, on there, and, and Google uses it to serve advertising, right, to targeted advertising to its users. And so Apple doesn't do that, and so it's trying to differentiate itself from uh, Google, right, by saying that it's a big defender of people's privacy and it's a big defender of, of people's data. So how is this FBI request for surveillance different than the kind of surveillance that they already allow the government to do? In your opinion, would allowing the FBI this one-time or even future access in a very, very limited cases, would that be a slippery slope to uh, Apple giving FBI surveillance of all iPhones 24-7, 365? I don't. I mean, again, I, I, no, I don't think it would be a slippery slope. I mean, they were they were asked to build a, a kind of a special one-time access to um, to the phone. Um, what's interesting about it is that Apple refused, and then you know F- the FBI fought with Apple for a little bit, and then dropped the case, and essentially went out to um, to um, a third party uh, and bought a tool that it allowed to that it allowed uh, the FBI to hack that phone anyway without Apple's help. So. You know, tools exist to do this kind of stuff. Uh, they're available from various uh, military intelligence contractors that create this stuff and, uh, and, and sell it as, as, as third parties to the government. So it's, there's no slippery slope here. This stuff is, is possible, whether or not it's Apple that does it or some other company that does it. But what, what Apple chose to do was to make this case a kind of a big show for itself. 
um, to show that it's different, to show that it's willing to stand up to the FBI. Um, and, and what was interesting about this, right, uh, was, of course, you know, uh, corporations and, and, and companies are going to uh, be self-serving and they're going to um, pursue their self-interest, uh, whether it's through and they're going to use, uh, you know, uh, either truthful advertising or not so truthful advertising to promote themselves. What was interesting about this protest is that it was backed by the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, and, uh, and, and, and what was interesting about that, right, is that why I even, why I even wrote about this in, uh, in, in, in the article and brought this little protest back from, from the grave. I mean, no one even remembers this anymore, not really. Was, was, was I was using it to contrast um, the EFF's response. The EFF backed the FBI, I mean, backed Apple completely. It sided with Apple and, and basically made this uh, fight with the FBI um, a fight between good and evil. A fight between um, freedom of expression and uh, freedom of speech on the one hand, and totalitarian Big Brother uh, surveillance state on the on the other hand. And so, it, what was interesting about this, right, was that um, was was the EFF was really concerned about this. But the EFF has been very um, absent uh, lately, especially since these surveillance scandals um, with, uh, with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And where uh, and 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 the uh, scandals with uh, alleged Russian meddling in Facebook and the use of these platforms to to um, manipulate people's opinions, EFF has been completely absent from that debate. Completely absent from that debate, and which is very odd. Why would they be completely absent from this? When Mark Zuckerberg is on Capitol Hill, why don't we see the Electronic Freedom Foundation out there saying, "Hey, you know, we want to, you know, we want this to continue. We want to." stop this kind of surveillance that's being done for profit reasons. How much did the inactivity of groups like the Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation that are usually the loudest and organized the most efficiently around issues of digital rights and privacy Mm -hmm. lead to the Facebook scandal going away? Well, look, I mean, look, when when previous uh, Internet privacy scandals hit, right, from this Apple dispute with the FBI, to Edward Snowden's NSA leaks, um, the EFF was out on the front lines. It was out there on the front lines, agitating against the surveillance and against the use of these platforms to surveil us. Right? Um, but when the when when the Facebook scandal hit, and when when, it, we, when people learned that Facebook was essentially giving away uh, data of its users to shady companies like Cambridge Analytica, and uh, the EFF was nowhere to be seen. I mean, this was this was a perfect this was a perfect tailor made uh, issue for the EFF, which is against surveillance on the internet. It's 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 for uh, guaranteeing people's privacy on the internet. And yet here we have this big platform essentially colluding or allowing this shady military contractor uh, aligned with Donald Trump and aligned with a scary billionaire called Robert Mercer, uh, essentially to siphon off data on millions of Facebook users and to use that data in whatever way they want. Um, EFF suddenly disappeared from that debate, and the reason is simple: is because uh, the EFF is only against government surveillance. It's not against corporate surveillance. In in the surveillance debates in which the EFF takes part and takes an active part and takes a, a prominent part, it only takes a it takes a principal stand when the government is involved, when it's the government's surveilling uh, Americans or American co- corporations. It it completely 
recedes from view when the issue is private surveillance, when the issue is the need to regulate corporate spying on the Internet. What could have groups like the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, done in light of Facebook revelations of surveillance via Cambridge Analytica? What can be done to protect our privacy from companies like Facebook and, and without putting Tor on my machine or having to do something else that I have to implement on my machine to make sure that it's private? What can these organizations do to ensure my privacy in situations like the Cambridge Analytica scandal? Well, look, I mean, it has to, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big problem, and um, it requires something other than a technological solution. It requires political solutions. It requires regulations. It requires new laws. It requires a new kind of political culture. Um, to, 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 um, to be born in America, where, it, where we look at the Internet and we look at the business model that underlies the, much of the Internet today, which is for-profit surveillance and influence, and, and looks at that and tries to regulate that somehow, tries to regulate these big, giant corporations from surveilling us and, and then selling uh, access to us and influence uh, to us um, with impunity, because there are no laws that regulate what data Google can collect on us. There are no laws that regulate what uh, data Facebook can collect on us. Um, so EFF could be part of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a solution by being part of a movement, by trying to start something that hopefully ends up with us regulating this industry in, in a much in a much in a democratic fashion in a way that is in line with democratic uh, ideas and ideals right but EFF does not do that the only position that it really takes and the only active position that it takes on on privacy and surveillance is, is has to do with um government surveillance so it's 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 in favor of laws limiting government surveillance but it's never in favor of laws that limit uh the business uh, model of Silicon Valley, uh, which is private surveillance. And so what we need are laws and regulations and the, to, to limit corporate surveillance. And EFF is nowhere to be seen on that issue. It's completely gone, completely absent. And the only thing that it really does is push um, very weak technological solutions to this. You know, uh, privacy tools like the Tor Project or um, privacy tools like Signal or it, it pushes for things like, you know, HTTPS everywhere, meaning that, you know, the communications from your computer to the website that you're accessing is, is encrypted so that your ISP cannot spy on it, stuff like that. And so it's very, very narrow, um, narrow uh, proposals on how to uh, guarantee your privacy online with these technological tools. But it doesn't want to regulate the industry at all. And so the question is why, right? And the question is why is this... Um, uh, nonprofit, this watchdog, this privacy watchdog that is widely respected around the world for its fight against uh, surveillance on the internet, uh, for uh, digital rights. It's kind of like the, the digital version of ACLU, right? Why is this organization completely um, absent and completely missing when uh, the, the issue comes to corporate surveillance? And what I argue in my piece is that um, the EFF is not a neutral watchdog. Um, the EFF, um, if you look at its history from its very beginning, is a corporate um, group. It's a corporate um, front group, essentially, a uh, corporate lobbyist that, that carries water for Silicon Valley. And it has done so consistently since its beginning. How interested do you think the Electronic Frontier Foundation is in democracy and democratizing the Internet? Because... 
we have we had people on from the Electronic Frontier Foundation from about 1999 to 2006. And when I looked up those interviews, almost every one, actually all of them, were about the trustworthiness of electronic voting technology. But we haven't had him on the show since 2006 because I started getting emails from people saying, man, you got to check, look into this. I think they're a corporate front, blah, blah, blah. So how interested do you think the Electronic Frontier Foundation really is in democracy? Well, I, I think there's kind of different kinds of democracy, right? There's democracy that, um, that, that, um, that empowers uh, corporations, and there's democracy that empowers uh, your average, your average uh, American and your average person who lives in America. And I think that they are, in their, vision, in their view, they're for democracy, right? But they, have, but the, the organization and people who work for it are, have a very libertarian slant and view, an libertarian ideological uh, view of the world, right? And so for them, democracy means, you know, having as little government regulation as possible to free up the creative juices of, 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 of entrepreneurs and, and allow the market to kind of do its thing. That's its ver- vision of democracy. Um, and we, you know, and that vision of democracy has kind of brought us to where we are today, which is a, which is a, you know, heavily monopolized America, uh, heavily uh, wealth inequality unseen in in a in a in a, in a century, right? Um, you know, declining uh, uh, lifespans, <laughs> all sorts of bad things that are in America are um, were brought about partially by deregulating and allowing business to do whatever the hell it wanted. And so the EFF has that vision of the world. It thinks that unleashing the power of business, the power of entrepreneurs to do whatever they want on the internet will incentivize people to create this you know, vibrant marketplace that will create a prosperous and democratic America. Their vision of democracy does not really include um, passing laws that limit or regulate Silicon Valley in some kind of way. That laws that limit um, data, data collection uh, business uh, and practices of Silicon Valley, laws that govern copyright uh, and, and enforce a stricter um, sort of policing of, of copyright infringement on the Internet. These are seen as uh, not democratic, but are stifling innovation, so are against democracy in the end. And so I think that a lot of people believe in what they're doing at the EFF. A lot of people at the EFF are actually not cynical. They're very idealistic, and they believe that they're doing the right thing. Um, but, uh, but, but, I, but, I, but I think a lot of people would beg to differ. Why has, what explains why the Electronic Freedom Foundation has been so successful, so effective in getting so many people to even, you know, people who are very anti-libertarian to support them? What explains to you the kind of success that they have had in misleading the public so they don't know that they're just uh, front for uh, companies like Google and Facebook? Um, I mean, I guess three words uh, explain that. Uh, internet, internet liberation ideology. Um, you know, the, ever since the start of the dot-com boom, uh, we've been sort of uh, fed this very powerful cultural notion, right, that the internet and the, these network technologies, um, if allowed to develop on their own and to develop um, un, unhindered, that they will create um, the basis of a new society, of a new radically dem- democratic society that they will decentralize power, that they will usher in direct democracy, that they will destroy uh, concentrated capital 
and allow the little guy uh, to have as much power as the biggest corporation or, or the biggest intelligence agencies. That's how powerful these network tools are going to be, right? Um, and the EFF, since its founding in the 19, in 1990, has been a, a big player in promoting this mythology of the Internet um, and crafting that mythology and promoting this message. On the other side, it, it also uh, was a big player in um, essentially weaponizing this uh, mythology um, uh, to further the interest of Silicon Valley so that you associate um, the interests of tech companies and the interests of, of uh, Internet businesses uh, with the interests of uh, the American people uh, and the interests of democracy. So you equate those two things. So whatever is good for Google is good for America. Whatever is good for Facebook is good for America. It's good for, for the little guy as well. Uh, and whatever harms them harms um, the little guy as well. And so they've been able to craft that message. And because that message of, of the Internet being this progressive uh, force, this intrinsically progressive force that was going to alter uh, society and, and, and make it more egalitarian and democratic, this is very powerful, uh, right? And it only recently has that begun to fray. Um, and Donald Trump has actually helped that, helped that in a big way. Um, but, but so they've been, they've been piggybacking on that, on that mythology, on that very powerful cultural mythology. And, uh, they've very successfully used that to hide, um, their corporate, corporate front work, uh, and, and all the lobbying that they've done for a corporation. Uh, and, and look, if you look at their, if you look at their history, it, a pattern emerges, uh, a very clear pattern emerges of them, of them. Whenever, whenever the interests of people and Silicon Valley, um, Whenever they align, of course, you know, EFF goes with that. But as soon as the interests of Silicon Valley and the average American diverge, it always, EFF always goes with Silicon Valley and ditches the interests of the American people. You write that the Electronic Frontier Foundation officially launched in the summer of 1990. From its very first days, it had deep pockets and big-name support. Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak uh, offered generous financial backing and joined the board of directors which was already packed with luminaries like uh, the Whole Earth Catalog, Stuart Brand, and Jaron Lanier, the inventor of virtual reality technology. That said, Jaron Lanier has a new book out called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts right now. We even have an interview request out to Jaron's people to have him on for that, uh, for, uh, because of that book. So is there or has there been any internal struggle at EFF over what their actions or lack of actions in the reaction to uh, the Facebook scandal with Cambridge Analytica. Has there been a marked change in the support for Electronic Frontier Foundation after the Facebook uh, and social media scandals that they've gone through? Um, I don't, not that I've seen, I've seen a bit of doubt uh, creep into certain, to, to some staffers and to some ex-staffers, but I don't think there's been a big um a big change of heart or a big, uh, a big, um, you know, uh, searching of the soul of the EFF soul, uh, going on. Look, I mean, Jared, uh, is, uh, Lanier is, uh, is, is an interesting guy, a brilliant guy, but you know, and I've heard him speak many times and I've read his books and, and, and I've read his, uh, uh, editorials. And, you know, one thing about him is that he is against Facebook and he's against this kind of business model that, um, that uh, is uh, is based on addicting us to a service to a platform and then spying on us right and then serving us these little uh and then using the data that's gleaned from our interaction with this platform that we are addicted to to 
to, to show us uh, targeted advertising and to kind of nudge us into doing different things, right, to influence us in these, on these, in these micro levels. He's against that. But his solution is very much in line with uh, EFF solution, which is it's not about regulating uh, these, these businesses like you would uh, regulate any other addictive substance, right, or potentially harmful substance or a, a harmful service uh, like gambling. Uh, you, it's about uh, creating new technologies uh, and creating the space for new technologies that could rival or that could compete with the Facebook business model and maybe win out in the end. So it's actually, on some level, he's a, he's a critic of Silicon Valley, but on a fundamental level, on an ideological level, him and, and, and sort of the, 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 the corporate work of EFF still are very much in alignment because everything is about letting the market do its magic. Uh, and unleashing the creative forces of the market rather than having society democratically regulate and control harmful industries. And you point out a couple of other ways in which, uh, prior to Cambridge Analytica, the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation revealed its kind of corporate agenda. You write that in 2004, Google was already a big name in search when it launched Gmail, an email service that came with one free gigabyte of uh, storage space. It feels silly to admit it now, but back then it looked as though Google was defying the basic laws of economics, that it was just giving stuff away for free. For true believers in the cyber utopian creed, this appeared to be proof that the internet was fundamentally rewiring the way business was done and money was made. It seemed magical. To you, what explains why nobody questioned how Google was going to make money off of Gmail or in general? Well, no, the people did question it. Oh, it was a, 2004. You know, was a was a was a kind of a watershed moment, I think, for um, the, the privacy debate. Because when when Google announced that, that it was launching this Gmail service and that it was going to read all your emails in order to finance it, it was it was upfront about that. Um, there was a backlash, immediate backlash. Um, there was, of course, a lot of excitement, and you know, you'd read articles in the New York Times that would talk about Gmail as a as something revolutionary. You know, some ridiculous stuff like that. But there was also a backlash from um, civil um, liberties groups and and uh, and and lawmakers. And so when Gmail hit, um, a, a state senator from California, uh, Liz Figueroa, she um, introduced legislation that would um, limit uh, that would that would try to regulate um, email scanning or e- reading of people's emails as a business model. Um, she would she would force companies like Google to um, to obtain c- consent, explicit consent from both parties that are party to this email conversation that that they're okay with their emails being uh, read by Google. And she proposed this legislation, and um, and she was backed up by a lot of uh, civil uh, liberties organizations and privacy organizations. EFF did not back her up on it. EFF attacked her for it. And Google, of course, mounted this big lobbying effort to stop the bill, which Google correctly saw as a threat to its business model. This is 2004. I mean, this is, this is a long time ago. This is when people were still learning about Google, right? It was uh, the year that Google went public. Um, and EFF launched this big lobbying campaign. It even tapped Al Gore, who was Google's shadow advisor. He flew into San Francisco. He uh, invited uh, uh, the senator up to his hotel room. And basically, you know, uh, gave her a kind of beating down and, 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 and told her to stand down because she, what she was going to do, she was going to harm Silicon Valley. She was going to harm this ecosystem that was going to change America, that was going to make America, um, dare, dare I say it, uh, great again. <laughs> um, 
um, you know, so she, so, and the EFF was very much part of that lobbying push to, to, um, to paint people who were concerned about uh, Gmail, uh, Gmails and Google surveillance business model as people who, uh, who didn't know what the hell they were talking about, for people who had no clue about technology whatsoever, uh, for people who, who really all they wanted to do was just make a name for themselves and they were just using this to grandstand. And so, um, you know, uh, the senator in the end was actually bullied into into withdrawing her legislation. But so, but but there was this big flash of concern, and it was completely stamped out by Google and with you know ample help from the Electronic Frontier Foundation at the time. You're right that Chris J. Hoofnagel, who is U.S. or UC Berkeley law professor and former West Coast director of Electronic Privacy Information Center, a Silicon Valley watchdog that actually watchdogs Silicon Valley, pointed out in testimony at California's Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on email and privacy that Google's data collection was just a corporate version of what the NSA was doing, an extension of one big private-public surveillance apparatus. To him, the failure to address private surveillance had a direct consequence on the effort to rein in government surveillance. The two were intertwined. How are they intertwined? How does private surveillance promote public surveillance? Well, first of all, there's the sort of the rhetorical and political angle, right, which uh, Professor Hoofnagel pointed out, that if you uh, make the argument that a, a company should, be, should have no controls over the data that it collects on, on its users, right, so that in order that it can show these users targeted advertising for, you know, underwear or you know, flights to Honolulu or whatever, right? If you, if, you claim, if you argue that you should not regulate private surveillance uh, for advertising purposes, then it's hard to argue that you should regulate surveillance uh, for national security services purposes, right? Because obviously national security is more important than, you know, showing your targeted advertising for a cheap flight to Honolulu. Um, just so rhetorically and politically, it, it becomes a much harder argument to make Right. Um, but also, you know, there's the, the aspect of that, you know, the NSA or the, and the CIA, when they uh, engage in surveillance of the Internet, they um, they depend on private telecommunication systems that are built by Google and by Facebook and that addict us to these communication systems that have us you know, be on there all day, writing all sorts of stuff, posting things, watching things, writing things. Right. We spend all our time on these private uh, telecommunication systems um, and the NSA taps those systems. Right. So the two are directly connected. So the NSA doesn't have its own Internet that we use. Right. We don't use a phone made by the NSA that then it taps and then it, it surveils. Um, government surveillance depends on these private telecommunication systems. Now, if these telecommunication systems uh, run on for-profit surveillance, right? Run on surveillance themselves. That is the business model of these private telecommunication systems. It makes it much easier to collect all that good data and grab all that data. That's really, really fascinating. You also uh, mentioned the 2011 proposed legislations of SOPA and PIPA. That's the Stop Online Piracy Act and the Protect IP Act. SOPA was drafted for House debate by Representative Lamar Smith, a Republican of Texas. PIPA was introduced by Vermont Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy. So it would seem like these acts that are somewhat similar 
were having bipartisan support, or at least there was bipartisan interest in dealing with piracy. Both were attacked by Google and groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Those groups and their support of uh, elected uh, representatives all called those regulations censorship. Were they censorship? Um, To Google, they were censorship, yeah, because to Google, they would have required uh, Google and Facebook and other companies to to install systems that would monitor um, their platforms for um, pirated content and to remove it. Uh, and to, uh, so, yeah, for, to them, it was censorship. It was censorship of their business model. It was a limitation on their uh, corporate rights to free speech and money making. Uh, um, but it wasn't censorship in the traditional uh, sense that people think it is or that people think of censorship as being as limiting people's speech. Um, no, it's not. Uh, it, it wasn't at all. Look, what was interesting about the SOAP and, and the PIPA and the, um, debate was that there was no debate. Um, you can you can argue the merits of the bills, and there are problems with both. There were problems with both both um, bills, even from supporters, even from from groups that supported uh, stronger copyright enforcement uh, legislation. Right, there were some problems with it, um, but those problems were never really brought to a public, a wider public debate, or any public debate of any kind, because what Google did and what it this. Um, Big sort of uh, like galaxy of of of, of groups that suddenly uh, appeared out of nowhere seemingly and started to uh, agitate against these legi- these two pieces of legislation. Um, they shut it down. They made it not about um, you know the, the 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 particulars of the bill and and whether or not how do you construct a a copyright protection regime that protects uh, the right of artists that protects the right of musicians right that protects their rights against uh, Silicon Valley. They framed it in these stark black and white terms of uh, Big Brother and Orwellian, right, on the one hand, that's, that's SOPA and, and PIPA, and freedom, liberty, and all the things that are good, that's on the other side. That's, those are the people who are against SOPA and, and PIPA. So there was no debate. So everyone that I knew, including myself at the time, uh, including many, 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 many musicians that would actually be affected by this legislation, and I would probably be benefited they would benefit from this legislation from having stronger copyright enforcement. They just were against this legislation from the very beginning because the push, the lobbying, and the public relations campaign was so strong, was so overwhelming, and used this, again, this idea of the Internet as being an inherently a progressive force, that if you regulate it, it would you know, it, it's tantamount to censorship and totalitarianism. Um, that there was the debate was completely shut down. You couldn't even talk about it. If you voiced even, you know, one percentage of support for these for for stronger copyright laws, you would be called a fascist. You'd be called an authoritarian. You'd be called someone who is in the pocket of the recording industry, uh, in the re, in, in the pocket of uh, telecoms and all this, all this stuff. So there could be there was it was it was it was completely um, the debate the the national debate about this was completely molded by Silicon Valley interests. And that's really troubling if you think about it, right? When, when an industry can have so much, um, so much power over, over, over an issue that it can just, in a one-sided way, dominate and prom- project its view, view of the world onto, onto America and to have, you know, n- not just people who are, who, uh, are libertarian or, or, or Republican or whatever uh, uh, side with them, but having 
people on the left and people who are progressive side with him as well. And so, um, you know, promoting a business interest as a progressive cause, that was what EFF was doing at the time. One last question for you, Yasha. We've been speaking with Yasha Levin. He's an investigative journalist, and he wrote the Baffler article, All Effed Up, Silicon Valley's AstroTurf Privacy Shakedown. Yasha has been on the show in the past, most recently in February, when he was on to talk about his book, Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. Find out more about Yasha's book at surveillancevalley.com. Find out more about Yasha at yasha11.com and follow him on Twitter at Yasha11. One last question, and as always, for all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Uh, this is just more of just a hellish question, I think. Because one thing I couldn't stop thinking about when I was reading your book and because of the other books I've been reading of late is how capitalism at the early stages of the United States, it was propped up by slavery. We wouldn't have had the success of capitalism or the success of the U.S. economy if it wasn't for slavery. Then in the 20th century and now in the 21st century, it's propped up by unfair development, where there's unequal programs, where the U.S. Uh, takes advantage of uh, the poorest nations and keeps those nations poor. And that's what propping up our current capitalism. And then I started thinking about, yet again, here we have in social media, uh, online, we have, peop- uh, we have a new form of capitalism that is, again, propped up by content that is provided by people who are not getting paid. How much is the Electronic Freedom Foundation fighting to keep content providers from uh, who created these platforms, essentially, from profiting from these platforms? Is that what the Electronic Freedom Foundation and other groups fight for the most, the right to pirate content created by others? Absolutely. I mean, you've said it. It's not a question from hell at all. I mean, it's, I agree 100% with you. Yes, EFF is fighting for um, Google's right to steal and profit off of other people's labor. Uh, the labor of musicians, the labor of uh, photographers, the labor of people who make films, uh, filmmakers. Uh, anybody who creates content or people who just sit on Twitter or Facebook and post their, you know, uh, their baby pics, um, everyone, is, everyone is creating content for these companies. These companies would not exist without uh, millions and millions and billions of content creators that are constantly making stuff that people, other people want to see on the Internet. Um, Facebook does not actually produce anything right, that is consumed by its users. Google and Facebook, they don't produce any content right, that is consumed, but they require other people to produce it. And so, you know, they, um, they're kind of like parasites in, in a big way. They're the, the digital tapeworms, right, uh, who are just sitting there uh, and they have latched onto um, our collective cultural production and are just siphoning it out and, um, and are killing, you know, in, in many ways, the music industry. Uh, I, have a, I have some musician friends who you know, are uh, in poverty, basically, because they don't make any money anymore. Uh, and, and Silicon Valley is a big reason for, for that. And so there are ways, you know, we have a, there are ways to create a democratic system that fairly uh, compensates artists for their work and doesn't allow giant corporations to just take it from them and profit off of it without giving anything back. That is possible to do, right? It is a possible solution. It can be done. Uh, EFF is doing everything it can to make sure that that does not happen.
And that, I think, is by far its biggest crime. Yasha, I really appreciate you being back on the show because this, when I was reading this, all I could think of was, well, here is the Electronic Frontier uh, Freedom Foundation, Electronic Freedom Foundation, and what they're doing is they're adding, they're depressing wages and they're adding to the precarity of life within our neoliberal world. And this is just a very enlightening article and some great work by you again, Yasha. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Thanks. No, thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Live from lands stolen from the natives, this is hell. In a few minutes, during a singular moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin gets tangled in time and space, which sounds really cool. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more share it, but many choose to do so anonymously and considering Facebook's sharing of data, probably a good idea. Thanks this week goes out to Try, to all of those who shared our interview with Rob Larson on the battle between capitalism and freedom, including the Anti-Capitalist League, Julie, Daniel, Rob, Anti-Tanky cookies for anti-reactionary nookies. Thanks to everybody who shared our interview with Catherine Nixie on how Christians physically destroyed the classical world, including Tom. Dave, who writes, I heard this last Sunday on KRFP. Good interview, which that's Radio Free Moscow, where we air in Moscow, Idaho, and that's also very cool. And thanks to all of you who correctly shared a uh, Christian bashing interview anonymously. You don't want to get all the flag for that. Also, thanks to sharing for sharing to Nick, who is the only person out of many who actually publicly shared our interview with Ed Bermilla on the Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Australian Indefinite Immigrant Asylum Seeker and Refugee Detention Center outside of their own government's jurisdiction. So get ready for the U.S. to bring that idea to Puerto Rico. Thanks to Jason, Robert, and Johnny for sharing our interview on Trumpism before Trump with Robert Tsai. Finally, thanks to Jeffrey and Gorilla Gramophonics for sharing This Is Hell last week. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Join us in two weeks on Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show which also features live music. That's Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning 3 p.m. and lasting until, well, for me, the over-under is about midnight, but I might be making some horrible decisions at that point, leading me to stick around until closing at 2 a.m. Saturday, July 21st, Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios above Carrie's, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m., Lasting until whenever, but for me, the over-under is midnight. During a singular moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin is going to get tangled in space and time, which sounds awesome. That stuff plus, uh, what else are we going to do here? Maybe some rotten history. Uh, Tell you what's happening on upcoming uh, episodes of This Is Hell. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. And Alex, I know you have FA on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Space enough and time.
Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. First of all, allow me to apologize. I apologize. Thank you for allowing my apology. Now, imagine a driveway up the spine of a hill. The top of the hill is a plateau surrounded in every direction by an abrupt drop-off, so the only way up or down the hill is the driveway. Otherwise, it's a cliff on all sides. There's a gate at the bottom of the driveway with a combination lock. When you leave the plateau area, you lock the gate. When you want to enter, you first have to unlock the gate, open it, and drive your car up to the top of the plateau. You can leave the gate unlocked until you leave. Imagine that when you leave, you have to back all the way down the 45-degree narrow incline, and it's a pain in the ass because the space between the gate posts is just a little wider than your car. After you back through the gate, you get out of the car and close and lock the gate, then you drive off to wherever you want to go, Hamburger Mary's, the library. But what if you were backing down, stopped the car, and got out and locked the gate before you had backed through it? You would have locked yourself in, at least until you unlocked it and let yourself out. For some reason, it struck me as striking that if you do something before a certain spatial temporal line is crossed, it can cause some inconvenience. If you try to light the burner before turning on the gas, it will not light. If you try to do brushwork before dipping your brush in paint, you will not apply pigment, but only hear a mild scratching noise at most. Physicists and stoners have long wondered about the arrow of time. What is it about our limited perception that makes us experience time as moving only forward? I would like to ask, what about the arrow of space? Events have a spatial sequence, not just a temporal sequence, and our rootedness in space, our experience of space as keeping locations separate from each other, is intimately tied to our experiencing time as keeping moments separate from each other. Time and space are metaphors for each other in that sense. Time has an end for humans. It's when we croak. Space has the same end. When you're out of time, you're out of space. There was no time in your life when you skipped over a few inches of space. Your lifelong trail through space is as continuous as your trail through time, and at the end of life, you run out. If you could experience time out of sequence, you would also be experiencing space out of sequence, but you can do neither. You can be missing some time from your life if, say, you black out, but the space time before the blackout will be earlier than the time after the blackout, and the time and space in between can be reconstructed if you exert the effort like they did in the movie The Hangover. Okay, what about teleportation, which seems like a little bit more feasible than time travel, which currently doesn't seem feasible at all. Let me address this technological speculation. First, if an object could be turned into a signal at point A and then back into an object at point B, it would still have covered the distance and taken the time just in the form and speed of a signal. If somehow teleportation were achieved through quantum entanglement and the object could appear instantly at any point B, well, I regret to inform you, I am barely competent to engage in the discussion we're already in the midst of, so I can't really say, but my feeling is we would probably solve the time out of sequence problem at the same time as the space out of sequence problem. There's a reason for this. But I would have to Google it, and I'm not inclined to do so. I'm sure it has something to do with particles not always being when and where you'd expect them to be, that Heisenberg thing, I'm guessing. The real lesson here, assuming there is one, is that you can cause yourself a lot of trouble by doing things in the wrong order. 
You could lock someone in a bank vault by mistake and have to wait till the end of the three-day weekend till the vault opening person showed up. In a world where space could be traveled out of sequence, the poor soul in the vault could just blink themselves out. But then what good would a vault be if people could just blink in and out of it? The idea of the bank vault relies on our sequential limitations. If you could get the money out before they close the vault, you could rob the place blind. The vault principle assumes that time and space must be experienced in sequence from now to later, from near to far. But when you think about how quickly technology is progressing, it's a pretty flimsy idea of the bank vault. All it would take to defeat it was a small change in the nature of a person to adhere to sequential reality. There's always the mind. You can remember the past, and you can remember faraway places, and you can imagine things. Some say that imagination is the mind remembering the future. You can also imagine a future place. In fact, there's really no way to imagine a future time without simultaneously imagining a future place. How would that work otherwise? Would you just imagine a future date, like a number on a calendar? Well, that calendar has to exist somewhere. A date is really just the name of a date. An actual date is attached to a place, duration, actions, feelings, temperature, threats, pleasures, you know, stuff. As it stands, the slightest error in keeping your actions in order, temporally and spatially, can have dire consequences. Don't shut the vault before you leave. Shut it after you're outside of it. You could be the person who's going to come up with a cure for the boogie-woogie flu. If you starve to death in the vault, humanity might just perish from wanting to holler when the joint's too small. Anyway, just a friendly reminder that time's arrow is also space's arrow. They're the same arrow. You can't get from Monday to Wednesday without going through Tuesday, just like you can't get from the village to Central Park without going through Midtown. Unless you're crazy or a good swimmer, have a lot of time on your hands. And when it comes down to it, who has surplus time? No humans, that's for sure. And you've just burned a few minutes of yours listening to this drivel. For that, I apologize. I probably should have apologized in the first place. I think I'll go back in time and do that. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, that was brilliant, my friend. Thank you so much for another wonderful moment of truth. So what's the deal? You want to give me an update on being able to be here for the party? Right now, it's not looking so good because I'm <laughs> broke and looking for work. Uh, I was... I. I saw myself in a little better shape just last week. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, the vicissitudes of life. You never know what might happen. Someone might say, Torchin should really be there. I'm going to, but then, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery. Oh, I do want to say uh, that that counterfeit, in fact, if you put it on the counter and it fits as counterfeit, <laughs> that was from Mikkel, Mikkel Maher, playwright. <laughs> so you're going to blame this on somebody Ula. else? I'm going to blame it on Well, I can't blame it on him because I repeated it, but I'm going to hat tip it to him because he found some, he found some old, like, like it was just like ethnic joke book. You know, it was like comedy from vaudeville of like foreigners, you know, people in foreign face as opposed to blackface. They were sort of pretending to be Germans or pretending to be Irish or whatever. And this guy goes, I got the job at the bank and I, I, I tell whether the I watch the guy who watches the bank and stuff like that. And he says, I tell if the currency is counterfeit. I put it on the counter, and if it's fit, it's counterfeit. <laughs> it's 
And I have such a very vivid memory of Mikkel telling that and enjoying that so much. <laughs> that I And, you know, to be honest with you, that bill looks perfectly uh, genuine to me. I don't see why you couldn't pass that to, like, I know the borders are a little bit screwed up, but that's about it. I thought it was I, I thought it was real because I have seen miscut bills in the past, but uh, luckily uh, the corner liquor store guy was hanging out with us at the bar, and he immediately pointed out that it was counterfeit. So uh, yeah, how did he know? I don't know, but he told us that um, one the most intense counterfeit thing he's ever uh, received was uh, he got a hundred dollar bill. He I did the marker check on it, and it worked, so the paper was correct. But then he held it up to the light, and he looked at the band on the on in the watermarks, and it said it was a ten dollar bill. Somebody had washed Ooh. off the ten dollar part and replaced it with a hundred dollar part, which is pretty genius. That is insane, right? How do you do that? Who the hell knows? But I'm working on it at home right now. I got it in a double oh. rinse in the basement. I'm sure there's a YouTube video of DIY. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeffy, until next time. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll see what I can do to scrape some money together. I really like to come. All right, stay beautiful. You too. Bye. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism, capitalism is all our pimp. This is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple of ways you can support This Is Hell at thisishell.com slash support. Or you can just go to patreon.com slash thisishell. Thanks this week goes to the religious-like tithing support of Francis and John. And thanks to Elizabeth, who writes, keep up the hellacious work. Will do, Elizabeth. And now we can, with your support. Thanks for uh, to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed now more than ever. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1520, 498 years ago, just a week after being driven out of the great Aztec city of Tenochtitlan, which stood at the site of what is now Mexico City, the Spanish conquistador Herman Cortez. Ah, Cortez the killer. Perfect for rotten history. Cortez led several hundred Spanish soldiers and indigenous allies northwest of the town of Otumba, near the great temple complex at Teotihuacan. There, they encountered an Aztec army numbering more than 10,000. Go Aztecs! Go Aztecs! Though the forces of Cortez were vastly outnumbered, they held an advantage in having brought horses from Europe while their Aztec opponents had no experience in dealing with horseback-mounted troops. Cortez ordered his men to attack, and in a series of charges, they figuratively decapitated the Aztec army by killing its leaders, Along with hundreds of foot soldiers while losing less than 100 of their own, Cortez was then able to lead his groups to Tlaxcala, where they could rest, recuperate, and prepare for an attack on Tenochtitlan itself, leading directly to the conquest of Mexico and its subjugation as a Spanish colony. In other words, July 7, not a good day in Mexican history, unless you were rooting for the Spanish in that one. And if you were, you're, you, you just suck. But if I know our listeners, they were all probably cheering for the Aztecs in that one, like me. Hey, at least in the World Cup, Spain got their ass kicked by Russia. Okay, Russia only won on penalty kicks, and they did benefit from home field advantage. But as Spain proved with the Aztecs, they can win on the road. 
In rotten history, 1834, 184 years ago, riots broke out in several locations at several locations in New York City, motivated by popular resentment against the activities of abolitionists. And we touched on that when we spoke with Annalisa Cox. When we talked to her about her book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality, which is which totally blew my mind. Near the Chatham Street Chapel in Lower Manhattan, several thousand white people assembled in anticipation of an anti-slavery meeting scheduled there. When the uh, meeting failed to materialize, the crowd broke into the chapel and stormed the pulpit to make impromptu speeches demanding the deportation of black people to Africa. Ah, white people, such a rich history of doing the most deplorable things. Really, they never disappoint in how disgusting they can be. I'll make that they always disappoint in how disgusting they can be. Another crowd invaded the nearby home of an abolitionist preacher, defenestrating the furni- his furniture and burning it in the street. Defenestration. The tossing someone or something out of a window. But nobody did that. Did fenest- defenestration better than the Bohemians. Hell, they had two. 200 years apart. And both resulted in the ending of an old government and the forming of a new government. Now that's how you change administrations, Democrats. Yet another mob disrupted the performance of a play at the Bowery Theater, whose owner tried to calm the disturbance by sending on stage a white performer in blackface makeup who waved the American flag and sang minstrel songs. Yeah, I'm sure that worked. Calm down an angry racist mob by getting a white guy in blackface to sing minstrel tunes while waving old glory. Great plan. That always calms a crowd. Patriotic black blackface minstrel shows are like a soothing balm for white discontent. But the rioting continued for four days, growing and spreading across the city. One predominantly African-American church was demolished, and several other churches and houses were severely damaged. The chaos subsided only after New York City's mayor called out the military to patrol the streets, and the American Anti-Slavery Society issued a statement denying rumors that they advocated interracial marriage. That's some branding, 19th century New York City. White supremacists send, send the signal that if two people love each other so much that they want to share that love for the rest of their lives, raise a family and spread that love to their kids, and have some different racial background, it's time to go burn down some churches, a few homes, and throw furniture out the window. Damn, crackers are racist. That's rotten history, and this is hell. Uh, let's see what else do I want to tell you about. Uh, oh, join us in two weeks, Saturday, July 21st, for our third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music, and there will be food. Saturday, July 21st, Carrie's Lounge, and upstairs at Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, beginning at 3 p.m. and lasting until whenever. That's the third annual This Is Hell 20th Anniversary Party and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, also featuring live music and there will be food. Saturday, July 21st at Carrie's Lounge and Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, 3 p.m. until whenever. Okay. Alex, what's happening on next week's show? Uh, I got to get to work because we only have one person booked, but uh, I'm looking forward to it because it's Roy Scranton to talk about his book, We're Doomed, Now What? 
essays on war and climate change. And of course, we'll have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. I want to thank our producers today, Alex and Leo. Thanks to Ronaldo for working on Rotten History. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for doing the moment of truth. Also, thanks to all of our guests, investigative journalist Yasha Levin, who wrote the Baffler article, All Effed Up, Silicon Valley's AstroTurf Privacy Shakedown, all about how Electronic Freedom Foundation is just a front for Google and Facebook. Journalist Eileen Truax, who wrote the new book, We Built the Wall, How the U.S. Keeps Out Asylum Seekers from Mexico, Central America, and Beyond. We've already built the wall of indifference between the United States and the rest of the world, so we really don't even need that wall between the U.S. and Mexico after all. Thanks to historian Annalisa Cox, author of The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. That book will blow your friggin' mind. Thanks to writer Jacob Hamburger, who posted the article, Whose Populism? The Mixed Messages of La France Insoumise at Descent. You can find out more about Jacob by going to Tocqueville21.com. This week's Hangover Cure is Peru's favorite Hangover Cure, Tiger's Milk. It's not actually Tiger's Milk. It's just the you know, the ceviche juice, the juice left after you've already eaten your ceviche. All right. This is not the media. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by visiting us on a regular basis at thisishell.com, signing up to like us at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, following us on Twitter at thisishellradio, and also by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. (laughs) 